This is Audible. Living a Life of Fire, an autobiography written and read by Reinhard Bonnke. Dedication for Hermann and Mita Bonnke, true parents in life and in the Lord, and for Louis Graf, who obediently carried the gospel with the living fire of the Holy Spirit to East Prussia, and set the pattern for me to follow. Part 1. A Divine Appointment Which thread should I choose, Lord? There are so many. They hang before my eyes like strands of silk in a doorway, each promising that it will weave the finest tapestry of my life. But it is not my tapestry. It is not my life. So again I ask, which thread do I choose? Which strand will pass through the very eye of the needle? Chapter 1 I sit quietly with an explosion building inside of me. I lean forward to the edge of my seat. My hands explore the cover of my preaching Bible as my foot taps a nervous dance on the platform. Every molecule of my body anticipates what is about to happen. I think you would feel the same if you were in my shoes. It is a tropical night in northern Nigeria. We are in the heart of Africa. The air is warm and moist and full of sound. A local gospel group performs a melody of praise accompanied by a drum. A chorus of birds, frogs, and insects join them from the surrounding trees. A vast crowd standing in front of me radiates heat and expectancy. Nearly 700,000 tribesmen have walked for many miles to this side. Many of them are Muslims. Their upturned faces draw me like a moth to a flame. Two million, four hundred thousand will attend in five nights of preaching. More than one million, four hundred thousand will accept Jesus as Savior at the invitation. Follow-up teams will disciple each one. Anticipation makes my heart race. What about yours? As you begin to hear my story, I wonder, are you like me? Does the prospect of seeing the great commission of Christ fulfilled drive you day and night? If not, I pray that the story of my life will light a fire in you, a fire that will change everything, a holy fire that will convince you that nothing is impossible with God. I see that some in the crowd tonight are crippled. Some lie sick on pallets, others lean on crutches. Not all will be healed, but some of these crippled will walk. I must tell you, when they walk, I will dance with them across this platform. Wouldn't you? Some are blind, and some of those blind will see. I cannot explain why, but in Muslim areas I see more blind eyes open. I wish everyone would be with me to see it. Chronic pains leave bodies. Cancerous growths disappear. These are but a few of the signs that follow the preaching of the good news. I feel a low vibration. 
it is almost audible. Generators are purring inside their insulated containers nearby, feeding kilowatts of electricity to our thirsty sound towers and stage lights. We have imported our own power grid to this remote area. We are far beyond the reach of Marriott, Hyatt, Hilton or even Motel 6. Our team has installed a small village of trailer houses to shelter us for the duration. Cell phones are worthless. Satellites keep us connected. Few have even heard of this place, yet more than half a million are here tonight. My throat constricts at the realization of it. Hot tears seek the corners of my eyes. This is joy beyond any I have known. I smile, tilt my head up, looking into the sky of ancient constellations. I feel the creator of the universe smiling down on this corner of the world tonight. I breathe deeply. The smoke of the cooking fires paint the breeze and bring me back to earth. I'm a thousand miles from anywhere normal, and this is where I feel most at home. We have found another forgotten state where few have heard the way of salvation. I'm Reinhard Bonke, an evangelist. Welcome to my destiny. Tonight events will unfold like a well-rehearsed dream. I will be introduced. My eyes will sweep the crowd knowing that we all have come for the same Jesus. My heart will open to the Holy Spirit and in my mind an image will appear. I call it the shape of the gospel. It is an outline that I will fill with an explosion of words that pour from my heart without rehearsal. I must now make a confession. This has become an addiction for me, but it is an addiction I'd gladly share with you. Leading sinners to salvation and mass, or one by one, is all the same. I eat it, I sleep it, I dream it, I speak it, I write it, I pray it, I weep it, I laugh it. It is my wish to die preaching the gospel. I am like a man starving until I can stand with a microphone in hand, looking across a sea of faces, shouting the words of his love into the darkness. It is huge now. The results are huge. I'm on my way to seeing 100 million respond to the gospel. More than 52 million have registered decisions since the year 2000. Without the decades of experience that brought my team to this harvest, we would be overwhelmed by these numbers. But we are not slowing down. We are erecting more platforms like this one in places you've never heard of. After hearing my story, I hope and pray that you will join me on each of these future platforms sharing my able to be there in person. Then I hope that you will be with me in prayer, in faith, in spirit. In truth, I've done nothing alone. God has called me and has been my pilot. The Holy Spirit has been my comforter, my guide, and my power source. As you will hear... From these pages, he brought me to the perfect wife. He gave us our beautiful children and extended family. And he has provided a team that has grown with me through decades of working together. Beyond that, he has brought thousands to stand with us.
they have supported us in prayer and in partnership. Our rewards in heaven will be equal. Oh, excuse me, I've got to go now. I've been introduced and there's a microphone in my hand. I stand to my feet and leap forward, ready to preach with the fire that I feel in my bones. But just before I open my mouth, I feel a holy hush descend over me. It washes over the crowd as well, and I drop to my knees in humility and reverence, raising my face to the sky. For in the air above me, I sense an invisible crowd that dwarfs the almost 700,000 Nigerians straining to hear my next word. I'm speaking of heaven's cloud of witnesses, a numberless throng upon whose shoulders I'm carried. And from the heavenly crowd steps a man, a German evangelist, who has gone before me. I know him by reputation. He is in many ways like these Nigerians, overlooked, except by heaven. His life was sown in weakness, and some say in defeat. Yet tonight, every soul born into the kingdom will also be fruit of his ministry. The very words that I speak first poured from his heart. Now I can begin. Chapter 2 As I begin the story of God's work in my life, I'm flooded with wonderful possibilities. Too many to ignore. So I narrow my search. I think specifically of origins. Not of his calling and his many directions to me along the way. Nor of the road that led to Africa and the harvest of souls beyond my wildest dreams. No, I first look back to Ostpreußen, a time and place that is no more. As I look there, I feel a mysterious weight in a place near my heart. What is this weight? I ask. And then I know. I know that I know. It is the debt I owe to a man who died years before I was born. How easily I might forget him. He is unknown, his life and ministry uncelebrated. If I remain silent, no one will think of his name in connection to mine. But I would know, and I must not fail to tell his story. Each time I step onto a platform and look across a sea of faces eager to hear the gospel, I feel his gaze upon me from heaven's cloud of witnesses. I could not stand ablaze with the Holy Spirit today if this forgotten brother had not carried the flame to the Bonky family so long ago. I examine the weight that I feel and think it must be like the debt a great oak tree owes to the acorn from which it sprang, or the debt of a giant spruce to the seed that fluttered to the ground and died that it might one day stand tall as a watchtower above the German forest. Yes, this is the debt that I feel. It is the weight of a debt I owe to a man named Louis Graf. One day, when I was still a very young man, I studied a chart of our German family tree. It was then that I discovered the general ungodliness of our clan. 
I became amazed that my grandfather and my father stood out as men of faith in a spiritually barren landscape. I turned to my father, who was a Pentecostal preacher, and asked, How did God break into the Bonke family? My father's answer has marked my life and ministry to this day. He told me the story of Louis Graf coming to our village in 1922, 18 years before I was born. Louis was a German-born gunsmith who had immigrated to America as a young man. There he had amassed a personal fortune through hard work and self-discipline. Following retirement, he returned to his homeland in the power of the Holy Spirit after experiencing a life-changing baptism with speaking in tongues. The longer I live, the more I see the divine connections between myself and Lewis, though I never met the man. So, as I prepare to repeat my father's story, will you please indulge me as I go beyond his words? I will share details that I have only recently learned about the servant of God. The story of Louis Graf is more than a personal narrative. It is part of the history of an entire movement of which I am a second-generation preacher. The movement of which I speak is the Pentecostal movement that began on the day of Pentecost, placed anew at the Azusa Street Mission in Los Angeles in 1906, and then exploded across the entire world. Today it is the greatest modern force in Christendom, with more than 700 million adherents in our time. To understand the story of Louis Graf for me is to understand this great movement more perfectly and to see my place within it. For these reasons, I've done more than research. I have let myself enter a time machine. I've gone to a bygone era where I have entered the skin of another evangelist probing his feelings and thoughts during a time and place that are not my own. And I have been rewarded. I've come away believing that surely his story passes through the very eye of the needle. It is the first thread in the tapestry of God's work in my life. Chapter 3 An army of clouds marched across the sky, dressed in shades of dismal grey. It was early spring in 1922, and the grip of a long winter was not ready to release the East Prussian landscape. A fine new Mercedes touring car eased along a carriage truck through the forest. Its engine puttered like the cadence of a military drummer. Mud spluttered its silver-white finish as it passed beneath the trees. The car entered a large clearing. Across a field of deeply furrowed earth, a farmer turned to stare. He leaned on his hoe beneath a cap of thick natural wool, his collar turned against the wind. The expression on his face was grim and hostile. In this German enclave on the Baltic Sea, an automobile was a rare sight after World War I. 
Russian armies had destroyed roads, factories, and cities before being driven back by the Prussian army. The Great War and its subsequent inflation had depleted not only the bank accounts of the German people, it had gutted their very souls. More than three million of Germany's best had perished in four years of fighting. The wounds of war were fresh and bleeding. The Mercedes driver beneath his jaunty aviator cap and goggles knew this fully well. He was a German-born American recently returned to his homeland after the Great War. He understood that this poor farmer had nothing in common with someone who could afford to ride the countryside in a fancy touring car. Still, the driver's heart remained tender toward the German people as he drove from one end of the war-torn land to the other. He gave a friendly wave to this farmer, hoping to at least spread some goodwill. Sadly, the man turned back to his hoeing as if he'd received an insult. The driver turned his attention back to the road. It disappeared over a ridge ahead of him at the far end of the clearing. At that vanishing point, he saw great arms of sailcloth turning against the horizon. As his car topped the ridge, he could see that the flailing arms belonged to a large windmill working to extract power from the sky. At the base of the windmill sat a flour mill. Beside the flour mill, a large stucco bakery with white smoke rising from brick oven stacks. The driver salivated. He had a kilometer to cover yet, but he could already taste the torts, strudels, and house brought, taken warm from the ovens. He might even stop to stock up on salted pretzels for the road. These, he recalled from childhood, were always folded carefully in a triad representing the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. He chuckled to himself, I'm not in America anymore. I'm in the land where religion has twisted scripture into a pretzel. As he came closer, he would see a small village of a dozen or so houses. They lined both sides of the road at the far side of the bakery where the forest bordered the clearing. He figured the small village would provide a welcome stop for a cold traveler who had lost his way. He imagined a warm fire. Perhaps he could pay for a bed for the night. The day was far spent. He slowed the car and stopped near the bakery door, pulling the handle brake and cutting the engine. Immediately the aroma of fresh bread blessed his senses. He removed his driving gloves and opened the car door. Stepping out, he pulled off his goggles and leather cap. He stood for a while, brushing flecks of mud from his cheeks and chin. Globs of mire fell to the ground from the car's wooden spokes and pneumatic rubber tires. The stylized elegance of the Mercedes's fenders swept away from the main body of the vehicle like the wings of a swan in flight. But this swan had been grounded by the primitive roads of East Prussia. 
Meanwhile, a perfectly bald man with a full handlebar moustache emerged from the bakery, wiping his hands on his apron. He watched the driver, who had now removed his neck scarf and was using it to wipe mud from the door panel. As he worked at it, a hand-painted sign on the metal surface could be seen emerging from beneath the mess. It read, Jesus is coming. Are you ready? The driver turned, noticing the baker for the first time. A good day to you, sir, he said, extending his hand with an energetic smile. I'm Louis Graff, a servant of God. The baker slowly wiped his hands on his apron before taking Louis's hand. He spoke in a cautious tone. I am Gerhard, and we are all Lutherans here. Lutherans will do. Lutherans need Jesus. I was baptized Lutheran myself, but I have since met the Lord and received the second Pentecost. Have you received the second Pentecost? The man shook his head. He had no reason to know of such a thing. Well, I must tell you about that, because there is nothing more important to the times in which we live, my friend. But first, I was on my way to Königsberg, and it appears I've lost my way. Can you tell me what village I have found? This is Truns. Truns? I'm not sure I've heard of it, he chuckled good-naturedly. I'm more lost than I knew. But that's not a problem. I'm sure the Lord has led me here to preach the gospel. Hallelujah. I told you we are Lutherans, the man replied coldly. In the meantime, a young man on a bicycle had ridden up and was now inspecting the Mercedes with awe and curiosity. Louis felt a trembling excitement in his chest. He often felt this vibration when the Holy Spirit spoke to his heart. A still small voice told him that bondages would soon be broken in this place. He nodded to the beggar. I can see my preaching here will have to wait until you have been made ready to hear it. These are the last days, Gerhard. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tell me, is anyone sick in this village? Sick? Are you a doctor too? No, I'm a preacher, but I represent the great physician. Let me ask you something, Gerhard. If I pray for someone who is sick and you see them healed, will you believe that I have been sent here to preach the gospel? Will you listen to me? Slowly the baker began to smile and nod. Yes, yes, I would listen. The baker knew something that Louis could not have known. Everyone in Truns knew there was someone horribly sick there. And Gerhard was smiling because this naive American was about to leave the village in utter defeat. He would never have to endure listening to his gospel sermon. In fact, there is someone sick here, he said, someone very sick. Listen, he pointed toward the village and then cupped his hands behind his ears. Louis did the same. At first he could hear nothing but the sighing of the wind driving the arms of the windmill above him. Then, 
After a few moments he heard it. Ah! He felt his hair rise at the back of his neck. The sound came from the far end of the village. It was something he might have imagined on a moonless night in the darkest wood, perhaps a sound of demonic origin. His first instinct was to leap into his car and accelerate toward another village. But he held his ground, rebuking the impulse of spiritual cowardice. The cry could be nothing, if not the voice of a man, a sick man, suffering as a man would suffer on a torturous bench. Who is that? His name is August Bonki. Gehat replied quietly, he is the Müllermeister here. He owns this mill and bakery and is the leading man in Tunz, a great man who has been struck down by a terrible disease, gout or rheumatism or some such thing. No one knows what it truly is. He has suffered for years and the doctors can do nothing. He cries out in pain night and day. Ah! The terrible cry sounded again, but this time Lewis heard it through ears of compassion. The elements of pain, desperation, and rage coming from the man in the house at the far end of the village were sounds translated in his heart by the Holy Spirit. Here was a soul trapped by Satan, a soul Christ had died to set free. Here was a desperate cry to God for deliverance, the kind of cry that would not be held back by pride or stoicism or German willpower. This was the kind of cry God never refused. Lewis immediately understood that God had arranged for him to become lost on his way to Königsberg for this divine appointment in Trunz. I would like very much to pray for Herr Bonke, Lewis said. Do you think he would allow me to pray for him? The baker shrugged. He turned and called to the young man who was still enthralled with the automobile. Hermann, come here. The young man picked up his bicycle and walked it to where both men stood. Yes, Gerhard, Hermann, tell your father that the preacher is here to pray for him. Hermann looked in puzzlement from one man to the other, obviously surprised, not understanding what was going on. The baker turned again to Louis. What kind of preacher should we say that you are? Reverend Graf? A Lutheran? A Catholic? An Evangelical? Lewis thought for a moment. Have you heard of Azusa Street, the revival in America, in Los Angeles? Gerhard and the young man shook their heads. They had never heard of it. It doesn't matter. Tell Herr Bonke that I'm a man filled with the Holy Ghost. When I pray for him, it will not be like when a priest prays for him. I will pray in the power of the Holy Spirit, and his body will be healed. Tell him that. The baker turned to young Hermann and nodded that he should go and tell his father these things. 
the young man jumped on his bicycle and began to ride quickly toward the house at the far end of the village. That young man on the bicycle was Hermann Bonke, my father, just seventeen years of age at the time. The sick man, August Bonke, was my grandfather. The Bonke clan lived in an isolated area of Germany called Ostpreußen or East Prussia. Our enclave had been created by international treaty at the end of World War I. It had been artificially cut off from the rest of Germany and it faced the Baltic states and the Russian Empire to the east. Along our western border, something called a Polish corridor extended from modern Poland to the port city of Danzig on the Baltic Sea. Today, Ostpreußen no longer exists. Following World War II, all Germans were ethnically cleansed from this region. In this isolated, cold, dump and forested land in the spring of 1922, however, the flaming torch of the Holy Spirit would soon be passed. Louis Graf carried that fire, the fire of Pentecost that would eventually consume my life. Chapter 4 Louis Graf entered August Bonke's household like a blazing lantern in a dismal cavern. Cobwebs of religious doubt and stagnation were swept aside as he moved toward the bed where the Müllermeister, the best man in Trunz, lay writhing in agony. He proclaimed liberty to the downtrodden, healing to the sick, and salvation to the poor, needy sinner, Lutheran or otherwise. He announced that the Holy Spirit had been sent for a demonstration of the power of God that could make all things new. Divine healings were signs and wonders to confirm the preaching of the gospel. He took the sick man by the hand and commanded that he rise and be made whole in the name of Jesus. August felt a jolt of heaven's power surge through his body. He leapt from his sickbed and stood trembling like a criminal around whom the walls of a prison had just fallen. He looked at his arms and legs as if iron chains had been struck from them. He felt his once swollen and inflamed joints, and they were renewed to a supple and youthful state. His wife, Marie, who had been at his bedside for years, began to weep. He began to walk, then to run, then to leap, then to shout. He grabbed his wife and embraced her with tears running freely down his face. A moment ago he had been unable to endure the slightest touch on his skin. Now he was a man set free of pain. He was free indeed. He could embrace life again, and embrace it he did. A new life of health and vigor had been given to a man condemned by an evil, tormenting disease. August Ponky would never be the same and would never, until the day he died, fail to testify of what God had done for him that day in Trunz. Chapter 5 
1922, Lewis Kraft did not see the great harvest he had hoped to see after the dramatic healing of August Bonnke. Spiritually, Germany was hard and bitter soil. Just two accepted Christ as Savior that day, August and his grateful wife, Marie. Louis led them in the sinner's prayer, and he laid hands on them, and they received the gift of the Holy Ghost with speaking in tongues. The torch of Pentecost had been passed. Two years later, Louis was invited to return for meetings at the local Pentecostal fellowship in nearby Königsberg. My grandparents traveled faithfully from Tons to these meetings, which continued for four months. Attendance outgrew the building. A city hall was hired, seating 800. Soon that was abundant in favor of a stable at the fairgrounds holding 2,000. In all, 4,000 people were saved in Königsberg meetings. This was an unusual large harvest in those days. Hermann Dittert, a lifelong friend of our family and one who attended those meetings with my grandparents, later wrote, Louis Graf was an evangelistic lawnmower. I found this quote only recently and it is fascinating to compare this lawnmower description to the one I began using as our crusades in Africa became too large for any stadium to hold. Meeting in the open air with standing room only, we began to see crowds with more than 100,000 in attendance. Within a year we registered conversions in the millions of souls. I could feel an evangelistic paradigm shift taking place, and I said, we have entered the age of the combine harvester. I reflect now on the difference between a lawnmower and a combine harvester. It shows, I think, the difference between the era of Louis Graf and that of Reinhard Bonnke. In the 1920s, the lawnmower was becoming a common tool through the following decades, the combine harvester was developed for the massive agricultural operations we see today. These two symbols also reflect a difference in faith horizons. In the 1920s, the Pentecostals of Germany were so marginalized from the mainstream of religious life that they only dared to see the harvest field as a lawn to be mowed. Today my team dares to envision an entire continent coming to Christ. A great highway is built along the route of the pioneers who first blazed the trail. The spiritual trail blazed by Louis Graf in Trunz laid down a pattern for my life and ministry a generation later. Even more. That congregation of Pentecostal believers in Königsberg provided the rich soil of fellowship that nurtured the faith of my grandparents and later my parents, Hermann and Mita Bonki. Two years after the Königsberg meetings, at the age of 65, Louis sensed in his spirit that he should retire from all speaking engagements. The duration of his evangelistic effort was quite short. Merely four years. 
This remains a mystery to me, nor can I relate to it. I am celebrating fifty years in active ministry, and am more passionate to preach the gospel than ever. I cannot imagine retirement. But in 1926, Louis Graf took that step, and the evangelistic lawnmower fell silent. Nine years later, Adolf Hitler rose to power in the economic and political chaos that was Germany. As the world rushed towards the Holocaust of World War II, Louis was called home to eternity at the age of 74. Part 2. Out of Germany Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray, dear Lord, keep mommy and daddy, my brothers and my little sister, Felicitas, safe, and me too. Amen. Chapter 5 Peace and safety, then sudden destruction. It was 1945 in Stablak, East Prussia. World War II was drawing to a close, and Hitler's armies were beginning to collapse. My comfortable childhood was shattered with the scream of artillery shells, explosions, and the drone of Russian planes. I had no idea what had changed. I ran to the window and looked out. The night sky flickered and glowed with the light of burning buildings. To my four-year-old mind, they seemed no more sinister than embers in a fireplace, no more dangerous than candles in a stained glass window. Such lights swept the clouds, and tracer bullets flew at the cross-winged silhouettes in the sky. My mother, Meta, gathered all six of us children around her and began to pray. I snuggled together with Martin, the oldest at eleven years of age, with Gerhard, who was nine, and the twins, Jürgen and Peter, who were six. Mother held little Felicitas on her lap. She was not yet three years old. Suddenly the door burst open. A soldier stood there. He was a foot soldier who had been sent by our father, Hermann Bonke, an officer in the German Wehrmacht. Why are you still here, Mita? he shouted. It may be too late. Hermann says you must take the children and run. Run now. Run for it. Mother sat on the stool of her beloved harmonium, her arms around us. She knew that she had waited too long. Day after day she had longed to see her husband again. She did not want to leave the secure nest they had made together in the military camp of Stablak. She simply did not want to accept that the end was so near for Germany. Hoping against hope, she had stayed in spite of the menace that grew each day. And now, this. Yes, tell Hermann we'll go now, she said, nodding to the soldier. He turned and disappeared into the night, leaving the door ajar. Dear Jesus, preserve us, mother whispered. Weeks earlier, quietly, out of earshot of the children, Hermann Bonke had told his wife that the war was lost. World War II will go down as horribly as World War I 
for Germany. The Allies are invading from the West. Here, in the East, Stablak is surrounded. We will make a final stand, but Russia has built an overwhelming force, and they will prevail. We don't know when they will begin the attack, but it could come at any moment. He told her that he would stay with the troops. He might not be able to return home from the garrison to see her before the end. The army would make a final stand in an effort to allow refugees to flee. When all was lost, he would be ordered to pull back to surrender to the British or French in the West, rather than fall into the hands of the hated Soviets. He instructed her to sew backpacks for all of the children. We would use them to carry food and clothing. We would have to pack now and be prepared to flee at a moment's notice. It was early spring and we would have to endure temperatures below freezing day and night. You must take the road toward Königsberg, then turn south. The road to Danzig is cut off. You will have to cross the Haff. It is the only way. The Haff was a frozen bay on the Baltic coast. Even though it was now February, desperate refugees were crossing the melting ice to reach Danzig. Mother's parents, Ernst and Nina Scheffler, had moved to Danzig soon after the war began. It was a German stronghold in Poland, on the southwestern border of East Prussia. It had an ice-free port to the Baltic Sea. Hermann knew that the German high command had begun the rescue operation codenamed Hannibal. Key military personnel and civilians were being evacuated from Danzig. The newly built German passenger ship Wilhelm Gustloff was currently in port loading for a voyage to the German city of Kiel. This will be your best escape, he said. If you can make it to Danzig, then your father can book passage for you. Before leaving that morning, he took Meta's hand in his hand, and together they prayed for our safety. Many times, as they prayed, my father could be heard speaking in other tongues, pouring his heart out to God in this desperate hour. Then they embraced and said a tearful goodbye. Mother knew this could be the last time any of us ever saw father alive. Mother had not only sewn packs for each of us boys, but she had made them for each of the children of our neighbor. As the final Russian assault began, and after the warning by the soldier, she quickly called the neighbors to come and join us. The time had come to bundle up for a long trip to Grandpa and Grandma's house in Danzig, she said. Like most Germans, we owned no automobile. We would have to go to the road and try to find a ride on a farmer's wagon. There were eleven children and two mothers in our little refugee group. It was still the dark of the night. We could not imagine the fears our mothers were dealing with on this journey. For us boys, it sounded like a fun adventure, something like a winter hayride. Outside we hurried towards the main road. In the distance we could see that the way was clogged with wagons, military trucks, and thousands of people on foot 
all streaming west towards Königsberg. We joined ourselves to the stream. Soon, Felicitas grew tired. She began to cry. Mother bundled her in a blanket and carried her. In the darkness, we did not manage to find a farmer's wagon that had room for our entire group, so we continued to walk until daylight. We boys soon realized that this trip would be nothing like a hayride. All around people were talking of the atrocities. Russian tongues were coming along the road behind us, and they were running over people. Soldiers were shooting women and children. And those are the lucky ones, an old farmer said grimly, wagging his head as we quickened our pace. We heard the roar of an engine on the road behind us. Mother screamed at us to run into the ditch. All of the people scattered from the road, but it was not a Russian tank. It was a military truck speeding past, a truck loaded with German soldiers from the battlefield front. They were fleeing for their lives, leaving us to fend for ourselves. Where are the Russians? screamed a refugee as the truck rumbled on. They have taken Stablak, shouted a soldier. Run through the forest, hide yourselves. We cannot take these children through the forest, my mother said, as she looked at her frightened neighbor and friend. A farmer's wagon is no much for the speed of a military tank. What are we to do? Another truck came by, and another. My mother was deeply distressed that she had not taken to the road much sooner. She now understood that she had made the danger greater for us by waiting until the last minute. Chaos was the order of the day, the possibility that we could be run over or gunned down by the Russian army was now her first concern. The next German truck will stop for our children, mother said resolutely. They will see that I'm a German mother. They will have mercy. The next time a truck sped towards us, my mother stood on the side of the road, hailing the driver. The truck swerved in order to go past. Mother leaped in front of it, and the truck slid to a stop in the mud. The driver cursed angrily. We have children. You must give us a ride, she screamed. Frau, this truck is overloaded. I cannot stop. With that, the driver put the truck in motion again, leaving us huddled beside the road. Someone will stop, mother said with determination. Dear Jesus, move the hearts of these men to take us to safety. She attempted to stop the next truck and the next they did not even slow down in their headlong rush to save their own lives. Mud spluttered over us from the spinning tires as they sped past. As we walked on, Mother hatched another plan. This time she would have our neighbors stand apart with us children. We would remain fifteen feet or so behind Mother's position. If she managed to stop another truck and engage the driver, our neighbor would not wait for his answer. She would begin to toss children one by one into the back of the truck. We would land like eleven sacks of potatoes among the soldiers. Last of all, the women would beg the men to make room also for the children's mothers, expecting that they would not want to have to care for the children by themselves. This plan worked. Once inside the troop carrier, the soldiers made room for us, where formerly there was none. 
It was standing room only, but they pushed against each other to make a small circle in their midst. Finally, they pulled our mothers into the truck and deposited them on the floor beside us. The truck revved its engine and began to roll on towards the huff. Mother sobbed and hugged us, thanking the soldiers again and again for their help, but they refused to look at her. The proud Prussian military had failed to protect its homeland. All had been lost, and now it was every man for himself. Their eyes darted left and right, searching for any sign of Russian troops on the move. Not long after that, the men began to scream and pound their fists against the cab. Someone had spotted a plane approaching. The truck lurched to a stop, and the soldiers spilled out like scrambling ants. Hitting the ground, they raced for a cover in a nearby grove of trees. Mother grabbed her boys and Felicitas as a fighter plane swooped low over the truck and then pitched up into the sky to position itself for a bombing attack. We had no time to leap from the truck or catch up to the soldiers. We were a sitting target. Mother took us like a mother hen hovering over her chicks. She put us under her body, spreading a coat over us, and began to pray. Heavenly Father, protect these children. Give us your angels for a shield. Let no weapon prosper. These are your children, Lord. Keep them safe in Jesus' name. She continued to pray as the hum of ballistic shrapnel filled the air, arriving faster than the speed of sound. This was immediately followed by the roar of the fighters' cannons, drowning all other sounds and thoughts. The track leapt and shook with a deep impact, thump, 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 of bombs pounding the earth in rapid succession. Explosions of soil burst over us as the plane banked towards the east from whence it had come. We could hear small arms fire from the grove of trees where the soldiers were hiding. The sound of the plane's engine died in the distance. Nothing had hit the truck. Nothing at all. We looked up. Mother shook soil from her cloak. Thank you, Jesus, she whispered. When the soldiers re-entered the truck, they were deeply shamed. None had looked to our safety. As seasoned fighters, they had been sure when they bolted for the trees that there would be nothing to come back to, no truck, no refugees. They went to great lengths after that incident to take extra care with us. We became their prized cargo. Darkness fell again and we continued on through the next night. In the pre-dawn darkness, we stopped in a forested area near the huff. Hundreds of other families huddled in the trees by bonfires. The soldiers carried us into the wood and told us to build a fire. With dawn breaking, they would not cross the ice. The Russians were flying from their positions around Königsberg to bomb the refugees as they fled, they said. I was happy for the chance to stretch my legs. The search for firewood in the forest was just what I needed. I began to hurry along, looking for scraps of dead wood that might burn. But the other families had done a good job. 
there were no scraps to be found, I went deeper into the wood, searching the ground diligently. Suddenly I looked up and had no idea where I was. I ran to the nearest group of refugees. Have you seen my mother? No. I ran to the next group and the next. From bonfire to bonfire I hurried. No one knew me. No one knew my mother. All were strangers. Here is Meta, a voice called. I rushed toward the sound of it. A man pointed to a woman I did not know. Here is Meta. No, I cried, and rushed away from them. I had been suddenly wrenched from my sheltered life in Stablak. Now I was lost in a dangerous world full of nothing but strangers. All of the things that meant comfort and home to me had been snatched away in one frightful night. I began to cry like an air-raid siren. A kind lady came and asked if she could help me. Between sobs I told her that I had been looking for firewood and now I couldn't find my mother. She picked me up and carried me from group to group until, at last, I saw my mother with a worried look on her face, searching for me in the distance. I leapt from that woman's arms and raced to meet her. I didn't even thank the kind lady. Mother embraced me tightly. My heart was beating so fast with a release from fear that I could hardly calm down. It was mother's custom to hug her children once a year, only on their birthday. Her hugs were especially precious. On the brighter side, I had unexpectedly found a way to get an extra hug from mother. It felt so good. As morning grew in the sky, mother and her neighbor lady lay their eleven children on packed bundles around the bonfire. We went to sleep, hearing their prayers that God would provide safe passage for us across the ice. Suddenly the soldiers were waking us up. They gathered us and loaded us quickly into the truck. We did not understand it yet, but God had performed an answer to our prayer. As we rumbled down the slope toward the half, a thick bank of fog rolled in from the Baltic Sea. Soon we were engulfed in the most blessed white-out conditions imaginable. This was the divine cover needed to hide us from the bombing and strafing Russian fighter planes. As the truck ran across the half, the driver had to slow down and use caution, it was late in the season, and pools of water on top of the ice splashed around our tires. At times we would slide sideways, nearly out of control. Sometimes the ice would groan and crack beneath our wheels. February was normally too late to venture out here in a vehicle. But desperation and the provision of life-saving fog drove us on. Occasionally, out of the ghostly mist, we would encounter the dark circles of bomb holes. Bodies floated on the dark surface of the water. Thousands had lost their lives trying to cross before us, but we reached the other side in marvelous safety. In Danzig we parted company with our neighbors. Soon, Mita, with all six bonky children clustered around her, 
knocked at the door of Grandpa and Grandma Scheffler's second-story apartment. It was a tearful reunion. Mother's younger sister, Eva, was also there. The first thing Mother wanted to know was if they had heard any news of Stablak or any news of Father. No one could tell anything. Communications had broken down. Danzig had been under bombardment for days. As soon as the weather lifted, the bombardment resumed. We saw buildings burst into flames as planes and artillery hammered the city indiscriminately. Dozens of plumes of smoke could be seen around the apartment every day. It was then that we heard the awful report that when the fog had lifted from the half, the Russian Air Force had completely bombed out the ice crossing. That way of escape was gone for all the remaining Germans caught between Königsberg and Danzig. Oh, please, God, Mother prayed, show Hermann a way of escape. Don't let him be caught out there. And what about Grandpa August and Grandpa Marie? My brother Martin cried. They are still in Truns. We don't know where they are, Mother said, but we will pray for their safety too. Grandpa Ernst seemed especially troubled. He wanted us to get out of the city as fast as he could to escape its fall into enemy hands. At the beginning of the war, he had left his rural sheep farm near the Lithuanian border for a job with a woolen mill in Danzig. He was determined to stay until the end, but Danzig was no place for his wife, his daughters, or his grandchildren. Daily he would brave the bombardments and go to the harbor. There he would jostle through the crowds, seeking passage for us on a ship. What about the Wilhelm Gustloff? Mother asked. Hermann said that we might find safe passage on that ship. For a long time, Grandpa did not answer. His face was a mask of seething anger. She already sailed, he said hoarsely. Mother assumed he was angry because they had sailed without us. His wife, Minna, knew He was troubled for another reason, and she could no longer contain her grief. She burst into tears. Tell them the rest of it, Ernst. Tell us what, Mother asked. A Russian U-boat sunk the Wilhelm Gustloff. Suddenly the gravity of the danger we were in became much more real. We had escaped from Stablak, but would we escape Danzig? Did anyone live? There were 10,600 people on that ship. Almost 9,000 of them were refugees, the rest soldiers. Most of them perished. Mother looked at her mother. Then we must pray. We will pray that God will lead Papa to find the right ship for us. I will look for a ship that is not going to Germany, he said bitterly, a ship that is not carrying soldiers. Mother sat quietly for a while, pondering. Might there have been a divine purpose in her delaying our departure from Stablak, even under the threat of the Russian invasion? What if we had arrived in Danzig in time to book passage on the Wilhelm Gustloff? We would all be at the bottom of the Baltic Sea.
On March 17, the city was still being bombarded. We had left our home more than a month ago, and the Russians had increased their positions throughout the country. Grandpa came home that day with good news. He had been at the port as an old coal freighter had docked. Visiting with the officers, he had obtained permission for us to ride along to Copenhagen the next morning. We would have to leave early. He felt that this was an especially good vessel under the circumstances. It was not a military transport. He also thought that its destination bode well for an unmolested crossing. It was bound for Denmark, the country that had suffered less than other under German occupation. As the war ended, this seemed the best possible place for us. That night, Minna, Ifa, and Mita fasted and prayed. Even though Grandpa Ernst had done his best for us, they were terrified. They wanted to hear from God about our journey on this ship. After a while, Minna got up and took a small box from the mantel. She removed its lid. It contained hundreds of Bible memory verses printed on cards. She held it out to Mita and told her to take out a card. She believed that the card would contain a word from the Lord as to whether we should go on this ship or wait for another. Mother reached out to the card box. She took a card and handed it to her mother. Isaiah 43, verse 16, Minna began. Thus says the Lord, which makes a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters. She could not read another word, nor did mother reply for a moment. The three women sat with tears streaming from their eyes. The Lord had spoken. He would be the captain of this voyage. Now they burst out in praise to God. All of us came near to share the joy. We read the card again, and faith rose up in our hearts for the journey, faith that God would see us through safely. The next morning we packed our bundles for the trip. We walked down the hill to the shipyards. When we got there, Grandpa was dismayed. Apparently, others had seized upon the same idea. Tens of thousands of people were packed onto the dock, ready to make the same trip. We were lost in the crowd. The ship could not possibly hold a fraction of those seeking passage. Our hearts sank. Mother was determined she had heard from God. She took us children by the hand and pressed into the crowd. Make way for the children, she said again and again as we pushed our way forward. Finally, the press of the crowd became too great. We were in sight of the gangway to the ship, but could go no further. Mother was fearful that one of us might be heard. The people in the crowd were desperate. Suddenly, someone began screaming and pointing to the sky in the east. A Russian fighter plane was sighted flying down the shipyard line, guns blazing, headed straight for where we stood. People began to scream and run. Mother knew the children would be trampled, so she huddled us together, telling us to get down and hide behind our luggage. Once more, as she had done on the military truck, 
she shielded us with her body. The air hummed again with the sound of ballistic shrapnel, hungry bullets seeking flesh to destroy. But we were not injured. Needless to say, the crowd had thinned. My brother Gerhard remembers my mother's sister, Eva, stood up at this point and began screaming at the ship's officer who stood near the gangway. Sir, look here. Here is a mother with six children. You must take them now. The officer turned his back to her, pretending not to hear. But she would not stop. She ran as close to the gangway as she could, repeating her demand. More Russian planes were now circling above, seeking targets of opportunity. We grabbed our luggage and hurried after mother toward the gangway. Ifa continued to scream at the officer, who seemed determined to ignore us. Suddenly, without warning, he simply turned and opened the gangway gate to let us all in. In this way, God made room for us on that ship bound for Copenhagen. We turned and waved at Grandpa as we hurried up the gangway. On board, they hustled us beneath deck. Soon other refugees were crowded together with us. They filled the lower hold of the ship with as many passengers as seemed prudent. Then they withdrew the gangway. Many, many more people were left outside pleading for a place on board, but the great foghorn sounded, and the ship pulled slowly from the dock. Our voyage had begun. Once on the open Baltic, the conditions below deck deteriorated fast. The sea was making considerable swells, and many more succumbing to motion sickness, the smell of vomit, feces, and urine began to reek in the air. In the middle of the night, my bladder could hold no longer. Please, Mama, I need to go on deck to pee. Mother could not let me go alone. She sent Aunt Eva with me, who took great care, making sure I held tightly to her hand. We reached the main deck and entered the cold night air. I remember the salty, fresh smell of it. It invigorated me after enduring the stench below decks. After using the latrine, I looked up into the starry sky. As I gazed at Milky Way, slowly tilting with a roll of the ship, I heard the faint drone of a plane. Suddenly my heart nearly leaped from my chest. On deck of this civilian ship, Anti-aircraft guns had been mounted and hidden under tarps. The covers were suddenly removed and the guns began blasting into the heavens at the approaching fighter. Aunt Eva screamed and dragged me towards the open hatch, but I broke free, fascinated by the drama in the sky. Before she could grab me again and drag me down the rope ladder, I saw the fighter plane burst into flames. Look, look! I shouted, pointing to it. For a moment, both of us watched, transfixed, as the plane fell like a burning meteor, splashing into the dark and icy water, off to one side. The passengers on deck began to cheer. It had been a Russian fighter that plummeted from the sky. As Eva hurried me down below decks, she was thanking God 
that at least we had escaped the strafing that had targeted us on the docks in Danzig. I also recalled the terror of the bullets and bombs that had rocked the military track as we sat helpless on the road. Incident by incident, the realities of this war were becoming real to my four-year-old mind. Sometimes after midnight, we were awakened by an impact against the hull. Staring into darkness, all we could hear was the constant churning of the ship's engine room continuing on course. All of the passengers had heard of the fate of Wilhelm Gustloff. After some minutes, passengers began to panic as the ship listed hard to one side. The crew rushed to the lower decks with gasoline-powered pumps. Either the ship had struck a mine or had been hit by a torpedo. Water was rushing in from the gaping hole in the hull. Soon the sounds of the pump engines could be heard below decks, removing the incoming water. Mother called us to her side. Here was the supreme test of her promise from God. She began to pray, Minna and Eva joining her, reminding God that he was the God who had spoken, saying that he made a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters. After some hours, the ship began to right itself. The crew explained that the pumps had begun to work faster than the incoming water and we were staying afloat. When the coast of Denmark appeared and we entered the harbor at last, everyone wept and cheered. I looked at the distant shore without a clue as to what awaited us here. All I knew is that I wanted to stay close to the woman who had prayed us safely through the fall of East Prussia. Though I could not yet put it into words, in my heart I wanted to know the God she knew, and I wanted to know him like she knew him. Chapter 6 Mita bundled Felicitas in a blanket and carried her in her arms. She gathered all five blonde-headed bonke boys around her, and together we stepped off the coal freighter into the freezing sleet of a Copenhagen spring. Eva held Grandmother Minna by the arm as they followed unsteadily down the gangway. Other ships were unloading at the docks around us. Slowly we began to understand that we were but nine of a quarter million German refugees entering Denmark. Eighty-five percent of them were like us, women and children. At first we were treated well. The Nazi-supervised Danish government did their best to feed and house us in empty schools, warehouses and meeting houses. But in a matter of days, Hitler was dead and Germany surrendered. The occupying German forces withdrew and everything changed. For us boys, part of each day's routine involved helping to carry water and firewood to our cabin. Firewood remained in short supply, and getting warm and fed became the first goal of each and every day. As the day and months passed, Mother nursed us through the normal fevers, colds, and bouts with flu, using home remedies and prayer. Doctors were not available. 
only basic medicines and first aid could be found. During our first year in the camps, 13,000 died, mostly children under the age of five. Today, moss-covered stone slabs mark the resting places of these German children in nearly forgotten corners of Danish graveyards. In some cases, one stone represents several children hastily buried in a single grave. I recall one I recently visited at the site of our internment. A single stone cross bears the names of Georg Kott, three months of age. Roswitha Rogge, three months, and Erika Rauchbach, who died after four days of life. And the headstones go on and on like this, row after row, 7,000 in all. Even as the war ended, the tragic momentum of death it had spawned simply would not stop. But of course, boys will be boys even in a prison camp. My older brothers and I found ways to play our games as mother, Eva and Minna bore the full brunt of hardship. I vividly recall chasing a makeshift soccer ball through the camp. One day I chased it up to a barbed wire fence. Stooping to pick it up, I saw an armed guard in a tower. It reminded me that we were not free to run and play as we had been in Stablak. It slowly dawned on me that we were not like the other children who sometimes stood on the other side of the fence staring. Sometimes their parents stood with them and pointed at us, and sometimes they cursed us for what we had done to the world. I slowly became aware that the army my father had served belonged to an evil empire. The truth about Nazi atrocities and Hitler's insanity began to make their way even into the conversations of German boys and girls at play in the camps. Our father's military rank, which had once been a source of pride for the Bonke boys, now became something we kept to ourselves. We were sobered and saddened. My brothers and I longed to see our father and to know that he was okay and to learn from him the answers to these terrible accusations. Mother had received no official word about Dad, but she reassured us that God would take care of him just as he had taken care of us on our perilous flight from East Prussia. But for many long months we were under a dark cloud, wondering if he had been crushed beneath the wheels of the advancing Russian tanks. In response to our questions, Mother finally sat us down to tell us that we would never see our home in Stablak again. That part of the world had been taken over by the Soviet Union. She explained that the end of the war had caught us in Denmark and that in time we would be allowed to return to another part of Germany where we would build a new life. Until then, we would have to make the best of life in the refugee camp. Carrying the full weight of parenting six children, mother let the sternness of her Prussian upbringing come forth. No doubt her strictness was compounded by the constant anxieties about our safety. 
we have to give account to her for our whereabouts at all times and get permission in advance to do anything or go anywhere with friends. She would tolerate no deviation from her every command, nor would she allow other opinions to be expressed once she had spoken. To run afoul of her was to risk a good hiding, as she called it. The word had something to do with the tanning of an animal's hide, which meant the punishment would be sufficient to change the shade of one's skin at the very least. She did not hesitate to spank or slap us with an open hand to make sure her authority was never taken lightly, and it seldom was. The threat was deterrent enough for everyone, that is, everyone but me. Somehow I earned more than my share of hidings. I might run off to play with a friend and forget to ask permission. Or I might express an opinion contrary to her rules, as if I had a perfect right to do so. I would become distracted while carrying firewood and end up playing soccer. On a sudden whim, I might fashion a fort from the firewood I was carrying and engage in a furious chestnut fight with an opposing team of children. My clothes would become torn and filthy at the knees. At mealtime, I might begin wrestling with a sibling and spill food and drink. There seemed to be no end to the ways I could get into trouble. It got so that in the morning mother would look at me and say, You naughty boy, I may just as well give you a good hiding right now to get it over with. And she meant it. As time wore on, I began to feel that she was right. I was an especially naughty boy. No matter how often I was corrected, it seemed I never learned my lesson. I wore my mother out. Often she would say, I so wanted a little girl when you were born, but you were my fifth boy. Dear Lord! It began to dawn on me that I was a heavy burden to her, but I couldn't seem to rise above it. Finally, it didn't seem to matter. Even when I managed to do everything right, I still sensed an attitude of exasperation coming from her every time I was in the room, it was more than misbehavior that irritated her. I felt that it was me. Not feeling well, my father Hermann Bonke lay in his prison bunk, staring at the wooden slats of the bed a few inches above his nose. He had been excused from work detail, which allowed him to spend some precious time alone in the British prison barracks. He thought of how many millions of prisoners had lain awake in claustrophobic waters like this throughout the hellish war years, victims of the Nazi regime. How many of them, millions of them, had died in horrible ways he wished he could erase from his mind. He had only recently learned of Hitler's final solution. He was still in shock over it. The extermination of Jews appalled him beyond words. As a Pentecostal believer, he had regarded the Jews as the chosen people through whom God had revealed the Messiah, the Savior of all mankind. 
knowing that he had served a government that had planned to exterminate all of them, left him permanently shaken. It haunted his thoughts and even his dreams at night. He wondered how the stablack prisoners of war were faring, those his men had guarded at the prison camp in East Prussia. They had been mostly Belgium and French soldiers. Some had returned to Europe with stories of even worse confinement after being liberated by the Russians. How were his fellow German soldiers faring? How many had survived the final onslaught? He thought especially of those who had stayed behind in Königsberg so he could escape by sea. He recalled how they had sacrificed themselves. You are a father of six children, the officer in charge had said. You must return to build a new Germany with them. He had been given passage on the last minesweeper to leave the harbor at Helau before the end. His fellow soldiers had held back the Soviets until his ship had made it safely into the open waters of the Baltic Sea. Rumors now had come that the men who had stayed behind had been marched away on the point of bayonets into the vast Siberian gulag in Russia. They would never be seen again. He raised his right hand and turned it over before his face. In the depth of his heart he wished he had never been the young boy who had raised a wooden sword in the village of Tons, dreaming of glory and battle. Little had he known that the Prussian cross he had so long to wear would be hijacked from its godly heritage and twisted into Hitler's swastika. How the descendants of the Holy Roman Empire could be transformed into the Nazi regime he could still not fathom. But he had seen it happen with his own eyes, day after day, with a helpless feeling in the pit of his stomach. It had taken only ten years for Hitler to seize absolute power over his beloved homeland. He would never live another day without regretting being German. Hermann had been in this prison camp for 279 days and nights. Every minute of every day he felt the pang of longing for his wife Meta and his children. He saw each of their faces in his memory now as he had seen them last in Stablak. He prayed for them by name, asking that they be preserved alive and well, and that they may be reunited by God's grace in due time. He had inquired again and again through the Red Cross, of their safety and whereabouts, but had learned nothing. With each passing day, the gnawing ache in his stomach grew stronger, whispering that they had not survived. Still, in his confinement, he did not feel persecuted. It seemed small payment for the mega death and suffering dealt by the German army over the last few years. The trials for Nazi war crimes were even now beginning in the city of Nuremberg, he would not have to stand trial because, as an officer in the Reichswehr, he had never joined the Nazi party. He thought that if he were given the death penalty as a prisoner of war now, it would not be too severe. But alas, 
it could not atone for so many sins. The war's sweep was too massive and its evils too many for any court to ever set right. But there was one who kept perfect count. Not even a sparrow fell without his knowledge. The hairs of the heads of every war victim, not to mention of every perpetrator, had been perfectly numbered and recorded in his divine book. One day the book would be opened and everyone would stand before the great white throne to give account for his deeds. God alone could balance the scales of justice. And he had done so. In heaven there was a second book, the book of life. The members of the human race would finally not stand or fall based upon their own deeds, good or evil. They would be saved if their names had been written in the book of life. To accept Jesus as Savior, place their names in this book. This was Hermann's hope and the hope of every Christian believer on both sides of the war. As he lay there, in his imagination, he saw a pair of scales weighed down to the floor with an impossible debt. A tank, a bomber, a field helmet, a bayonet, an iron cross adorned with swastikas. Then, placed on the opposite side of the scale, the old rugged cross. Under the weight of that cross, the scales were balanced. This alone was the equation of divine justice. God placed on him the iniquity of us all. Tears ebbed from his eyes as his heart reached out to this infinite God in prayer. My heavenly Father, I'm yours for the remaining years of my life. No more military service for me. It is my heart's desire to preach your gospel and to serve you alone until the day I see you face to face. Across the empty barracks, he heard a door quietly open and close. Someone began walking softly across the floor. The flooring softwoods creaked beneath every step. Hammond thought perhaps it was a British guard coming to check on him, or a doctor coming to see why he had reported feeling sick. He rolled from the bunk and stood up to face him, and to his utter shock it was a man in white, wearing a seamless robe and Middle Eastern sandals. He was smiling as he moved toward him, hands extended as if to embrace him. His hair was long and his beard full, and when Hermann reached out to take his hand, he saw that it was torn completely through from the force of a Roman nail. Hermann, I am so glad you are coming, the master said, and then vanished into thin air. Hermann fell on his knees. He could do nothing but weep for the rest of the day and night. How could the Savior be made glad by one so guilty? 
returning to his bank he lay down, his soul overflowing with the peace of God that passes understanding. Until this moment it had seemed inconceivable that an imprisoned soldier of the Third Reich could receive the smile of the Lamb of God and that the Savior would express God's pleasure at his desire to serve him as a minister of the gospel. The treasure of this encounter burned like a warming fire in his heart until the day he died. What a day for us when the Red Cross delivered that wonderful letter, the first of many. Our father had found us at last. Mother's tears fell freely as she read his words again and again, stroking his handwriting with her fingers, knowing that her beloved Hermann had miraculously escaped the war's end. I jumped with joy as she gave us the news that he was alive in a British prisoner of war camp near Kiel, Germany. Kiel, Mother explained, was not far from Denmark, just across the narrow straits of the Baltic. It would be years until we saw him, but just knowing he was alive and that he was that close to us in miles was enough for us. Our entire family had been spared by the hand of God from the terrible end of the war. I watched the joy on Mother's face and I reflected her happiness. I spent my time in the refugee camp with a new measure of purpose thereafter. Days later, while at play, I noticed a serious look on the face of my older brother Martin. He was speaking to Gerhard, Peter and Jürgen near the compound fence, and he seemed deep in thought. I came near and heard some of what he was saying. Why didn't God save the people on the Wilhelm Gustloff? They were Christians. What about the ones who fell through the ice on the half? Did God save the bonkies and not them? God didn't send the fog that covered us. That fog was just part of the weather patterns. We were the lucky ones, that's all. Some days the fog comes and some days it doesn't. God didn't do that. These were big ideas, too big for my now six-year-old mind. Hearing them from Martin made me feel terrible, like someone had stolen my most prized possession. I walked away quickly, deeply disturbed. Later I found Mother alone. Mother, God kept us safe from the Russians, didn't he? Oh yes, Reinhardt, he did. I could see her face glowing with thankfulness as she spoke. And did he keep Father also? Yes, and Father, too, God is so good. We must praise him every day and be thankful for his protection over our family. So many perished, but we were spared. My heart became peaceful again. Her faith was the solid rock that anchored my drifting soul. To this belief, I would cling for comfort and joy. And in this way, I began to walk a path separate and distinct from that of my older brothers. Our ways would eventually lead us to very different destinations. After nearly two years in the camp, Grandpa Ernst Schaeffler contacted Minna and Eva through the Red Cross. 
he had survived the fall of Danzig and he had escaped to Neu-Ulm, Germany. The old sheep farmer was working for a branch of the same woolen mill that had employed him in Danzig. He had secured a home and had found a way to free his wife and daughter from the camp. We were sad and at the same time so glad when we said our goodbyes. We wanted Grandma and Aunt Eva to be free, but we did not understand why we were not given our freedom at the same time. These were questions to which we could expect no answers. We were merely German war refugees who in the eyes of many deserved life in prison. Meanwhile, we continued to receive letters from Father. These were the highlight of our remaining time in the camp. We would gather together and Mother would read them aloud to us and we would feel connected again. We would dare to dream of a future in which we would be together with Father. It had happened for Grandpa Ernst, Minna and Eva. It would surely happen for us. I remember the day Father told us of his release from the prisoner of war camp. We shouted and celebrated and sang praises to God. He had been allowed to go to a city in northern Germany called Glückstadt. There he had found a room in a friend's house and he had been offered a good paying job as a civil servant. He was preparing a place for us to come and live with him when we were released. We were ecstatic. The name Glückstadt meant luck city. As Christians, we did not believe in luck, but we certainly believed that it would be our very good fortune to live there with Father, especially when we learned that he had found a little Pentecostal church in that town and had joined the fellowship. This would be our church home when we joined him. We were sure that our time of freedom was near. We began to dream of life in the house with Father in Glückstadt. But as we waited, the days turned into weeks and into months, until finally we stopped asking, Mother, when are we going to live with Father? The question brought tears to her eyes. Another letter arrived that threw everything into tension. More precisely, the letter threw Mother into turmoil. Now that I am an adult, I can better understand it. In this letter, Father asked, if she would support him in a decision to turn his back on the secure income he would receive in a civilian job. He wanted to become the pastor of a small group of Pentecostal refugees in the nearby town of Krempe. He explained that Krempe was only five miles from the house where he lived in Glückstadt. He could ride there on a bicycle and become their preacher. He had great compassion for these suffering people, he said, and it was the desire of his heart to serve the Lord by serving them, rather than receive another kind of paycheck. He reminded her of his promise to God in the prison camp and of the visitation from Jesus he had received there. These things had been communicated in earlier letters. He also reminded her of his dedication to God before the war when he had gone to a soldier's retreat at Rheinbeck Castle. 
From that day on, he had wanted to respond to the calling of the Lord to full-time ministry, but he had been unable to obtain a discharge from the Reichswehr. Now, after the war, all that had changed. Mother prayed and sought God for her answer. This would not be easy. She was the struggling mother of six, living for years in a refugee camp, hoping for a better future. It appeared that the Lord had provided that better tomorrow in Glückstadt with her husband. Meanwhile, millions of Germans were unemployed. To give up an income with post-war security was like letting go of a life preserver after the Wilhelm Gustloff had gone down. In addition to her financial concerns, Mother could think of one other hurdle that stood in the way. Hermann had made a promise to her father, Ernst Scheffler, in order to obtain permission to marry her. She wrote a return letter to father reminding him of the solemn pledge he had made. Had he forgotten? Could any preacher be a true man of God if he broke such a promise? Chapter 7 Mother wrote a letter reminding Hermann of a pledge he had made to her father Ernst. In order to marry Mita, he had promised that he would never become a preacher of the gospel. It had been Ernst's one condition. What was to be done with that promise? Could it be simply discarded? My father's reply was basically, yes, it could be discarded. He would approach Ernst to learn if he was still holding him to the promise. Surely he was not. But if so, he would have to inform him that he answered to a higher authority. Hermann remembered how he had signed away his life to the German Reichswehr while still a young man in his teens. Years later, after coming to the Lord and coming of age, he had changed his mind. He wanted to leave the military and enter the full-time ministry. But the government would not allow it. Bondage to a youthful vow had led him to serve the most horrific regime in history. Lessons learned. He would not be held to Ernst Scheffler's demand if it violated the call of the man with the nail-scarred hands. The question came back to the one between my father and mother. Would she support him if he followed this call? Once again she had to go to her knees in the prison camp, seeking assurance that God would supply for the family if Hermann made this change. At length she received peace in her heart. She wrote Hermann back telling him that she would support him fully if he felt Krempe was the door God had opened for ministry. The promise he had made to her father could not compare to the visitation he had received from the Lord confirming his calling. Besides her mother, Minna was a woman of biblical spirituality. She would help with any objections from Ernst. Subsequently, our father was provided a bicycle by the pastor of the church in Glückstadt. He used it to ride the full five miles to and from church in Krempe each Sunday. Every letter from him from this time on 
was filled with the stories of ministry. We learned of the extreme poverty among the refugees and how the town of Kemperhat generously provided a hall for his meetings free of charge. Each letter contained information that made us feel a part of what he was doing. Over time, Father's congregation grew to include 100 refugees. This growth forced them out of the free hall into a youth hostel that could accommodate the entire group. He told us of children in Krempe who would someday want to meet us when we came to join him in Glückstadt. I tried to imagine what Glückstadt and Krempe looked like and what the other children in my father's church were like. All of the difficulty in the refugee camp seemed more endurable now that we had such a future before us. Most of all, I remember imagining my father in the pulpit. I was very proud to think that he was no longer a soldier, but a preacher of the gospel. Mother found ways to be a blessing in spite of the challenge of camp life. She managed to get access to a sewing machine and kept us well outfitted for the Danish climate. She organized a camp choir, copying sheet music by hand. When someone had a birthday in the camp, she saw to it that they were properly celebrated in song. When anyone died, she would conduct the choir as the chaplain said prayers and read scripture. At Christmas, our entire family celebrated with a concert of carols. As I grew older in the camp, I continued to earn her anger and harsh discipline. Often my misbehavior would reduce her to outbursts, even as she was engaged in leading the choir or sewing clothes. No one in those days thought anything wrong with a parent acting in this way, it was assumed that parents were responsible for the actions of their children. Under this kind of thinking, I was bringing shame to her. Nearly three years passed in the camp. On her birthday, mother was allowed to take us to attend a local Lutheran church. When we arrived, she was so thrilled to see that this particular edifice housed a fine pipe organ. After the service ended, she approached the preacher with a special birthday request. Would he allow her to play just one hymn on the great organ? He graciously allowed it. When she played, the preacher received a revelation. No one in his parish possessed mother's musical skills. He quickly realized that such a talent could make a marked improvement in the worship experience in his sanctuary. Now he had a request for her. Would you please come back, Mrs. Bonkey, each Sunday and play for us? And of course, it was a great pleasure to do so and to bring all six of us to sit in the pews nearby. I remember how tall the vaulted ceilings were in that church and how large the pipes on that organ. I recall the blasts of the various notes and instruments that seemed to explode from my mother's fingertips as she played, notes that echoed back like pelting rain from a vaulted heaven. 
That mighty music in that cavernous church left me with the feeling that God was huge and far away and indifferent to the squirming behind a young boy imprisoned in a hand-carved Danish pew. Until she finished playing, I was nearly beside myself to be free of that place so I could run and play soccer in the refugee camp field again. My four years of internment from the age of five until nine marked on my psyche the wonderful difference faith can make, especially faith in a loving and compassionate God. My mother, more than anyone else, etched that lasting impression upon me. As spring follows winter, as those who mourn will be comforted, so Meta's music followed after the agonies of war. In my heart, and years later in my head, her performance on that great pipe organ became a magnificent anthem. Those great hymns like Luther's A Mighty Fortress is Our God have a way of imprinting themselves indelibly in the memory. Watching the example of my mother as both a musician and a refugee, I began to know that the compassion of our Lord flows like a river towards those in prison. Whether victims or perpetrators, his blood was shed for the sins of all. No cause or effect of human failure is beyond his reach. Years later, as I began to read and understand the Bible for myself, I came across the words of Jesus as he quoted from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek, he hath sent me to bind up the broken-hearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. My heart immediately recognized this good news as a message from the very heart of God. The God my mother knew, the God I longed to know, even though I was a very naughty boy. Chapter 8 Perpendorf, Perpendorf, Perpendorf This word puffed from the stack of the steam engine that pulled our train along the shining rails, or so it seemed to me. Perpendorf was the name of the prison camp to which we were travelling. It was the place where we would meet father again. I could not sit down. For weeks after learning that we would be reunited, I had seen myself running faster than all of my brothers, and of course my sister too, and leaping first into father's arms. While playing soccer in the camp in Denmark, I had secretly tested myself. I was sure that I could outrun them all. I was the swiftest punky in the clan, by my own measure, at least. As we rolled through the green farmland of northern Germany, I stood at an open window. 
I could smell and taste the sulphur-tinged exhaust from the coal-fired engine. The train took a long curve, and I strained to see past the white trail of steam and cinder smoke. I was determined to shout, Pependorf! I see Pependorf! At the first opportunity, my insides tickled like a balloon full of butterflies. I fairly bounced on my tiptoes with anticipation. When last I had seen my father, I had been four. Now I was almost nine. Mother told me that he would be very proud of how I had grown. I couldn't wait to show him how tall and how fast I was and to make him proud. There would be time enough for him to learn what a naughty boy I really was. Peppendorf! I see Peppendorf! I shouted, pointing to a large platform surrounded by barbed wire. I felt so proud that I had seen it first. The other children joined me at the windows as the train began to slow its chugging pace. Martin was now fifteen, Gerhard thirteen, Peter and Jürgen eleven. I was nine and Felicitas seven. The wheels beneath us began to scream with brake friction as we rolled slowly to a stop. Nita remained calmly in her seat. She knew that the time for happiness would be the actual moment of seeing her husband. There were many, many procedures to endure first. We were still refugees. For some reason, we could not simply be released even after being detained for so long. The international community had to inflict one last indignity upon us, forcing Hermann to re-enter a prison camp for our reunification. It must have been hard for him after enjoying recent years of freedom. Father had been a prisoner of war, a captured soldier. When his military service records had been produced and examined by the British, they saw that he had never joined the Nazi party, and he had been released. Finally, we were being transferred from Denmark to British control at Peppendorf. There we would have all of our release paperwork processed. The officials needed to confirm that we were indeed the family from Stablak, who had been separated from Hermann during the fall of Ostpreußen, and that we were registered properly with all of the new West German government agencies. In Denmark, we had been released from the camp, issued new papers, and shipped across the Baltic Straits to the port of Kiel. There, we had boarded this train under British guard and now arrived at Peppendorf. It was the most famous, or perhaps the most infamous, displaced persons camp run by the British Army. In Peppendorf, before we arrived, the British had confined thousands of Jews who had survived the Bergen-Belsen death camp. These desperate people had tried to immigrate illegally to Palestine aboard a ship they called the Exodus. The British Navy had turned the ship around and forced the illegals to return to Germany, confining them in Perpendorf. The firestorm of world opinion that followed embarrassed the British so badly that they had hastened to release the Jews. This embarrassment had also accelerated something quite unanticipated, an event 
that would forever change the world, the formation of the Jewish state of Israel in Palestine. Mother and father had corresponded with excitement about this great event. Out of the horrors of the Holocaust, God seemed to be orchestrating the fulfillment of Old and New Testament prophecies. In many passages it had been written that he would gather his chosen people from the ends of the earth and establish them again in the land he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We were seeing these words fulfilled in our time. It created a sense that ours would be the final generation before the coming of the Lord. I heard the words of Jesus quoted often, as recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. A year after the formation of Israel, it was our turn to pass through the gates of Peppendorf. Once there, our papers were duly stamped and noted, our belongings searched. We were led to the section of barracks where they told us Hermann Bonke would be waiting for us. As the final barbed wire gates to his compound were unlocked, I knew my time had come. I broke free of the others and sprinted across the common yard, searching among the other men who were waiting for their loved ones. Some of them were playing soccer and board games, others standing in groups, talking in the sun. I ran as fast as my legs would carry me until I reached the wall of the concert hut on the far side of the field. There I turned, sides heaving as I gasped for oxygen. I had not seen my father. I had somehow missed him. I looked frantically right and left. Reinhard, I heard mother call, a familiar exasperation in her voice. Reinhard, get back here now. When I turned to look back from whence I had run, there was my father near the gate on his knees, hugging all of his children, minus one, the fastest bonky in the clan. My disappointment was quickly overwhelmed by delight. I raced back and leaped on the pile, becoming the tipping point that threw the whole bunch of them to the ground. Hermann lay for a while among his children, laughing and crying. All at the same time, we each hugged an arm, a leg, his torso, whatever we could find for ourselves. We hugged and laughed and cried with him, unable to use real words to say just how we had missed him and how glad we were to see him again and how we loved him and how a dozen other things we had been saving up to say for almost four long years. He laughed and hugged us back because he could not help himself and he cried perhaps because he had remembered that he was the man his buddies had put on the last minesweeper to leave Königsberg so he could be here now with his wife and children just like this. And those men had paid with their lives. He hugged each of us one by one and told us how proud he was of us, remarking how we had grown. 
in the joy and energy of this family reunion, I did not find an opportunity to show him just how fast I could run. You see, Reinhard, mother was saying, you don't listen. You always have your own ideas. If I had not been here, you would still be wandering around looking for your father in all the wrong places. I know, mother. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Chapter 9 Martin, you have grown so tall and smart. And Gerhard, you are not far behind him. Nearly as tall. I can hardly believe it is you. Walk on your hands for me, Gerhard. Let me see that trick again. Gerhard quickly tilted himself up and made his way from one wall of the room to the other, walking on his hands, his legs above his torso. At the far wall he turned and returned to the place from which he had started. It was something he had taught himself to do while in the camp in Denmark. Father laughed and clapped. When I tried to do it, I fell awkwardly to one side. No matter how many times I tried to balance, I fell. But for Gerhard, it seemed as easy as walking upright. Gerhard is the athlete of the family, father said. Martin, you will soon be old enough to join the military, but you are named Martin for good reason. You will preach the gospel like Martin Luther one day. Father went on joking with us and telling us what he felt we should become one day. Night after night, eight bonkers were stuck in the single room father had found after the war. We shared the house with several other families. Even worse, each night father seemed stuck on the same topic. The happiness of our homecoming seemed to be sucked from the room as he talked about World War II. We fought for our country, which is a noble ideal, but our country had been taken over by Hitler and the Nazis. They took the greatest military the world has ever seen, and they wasted it for ego and insanity. They betrayed everything Germany stood for, and it is no wonder the world hates us. In the end, the Soviets overrun us, and now an iron curtain divides Germany into East and West. It divides Berlin and most of Europe. This is what our war accomplished. Your grandfather August was killed by the Soviets when they crushed East Prussia. Now, Hermann, mother cautioned, do the children need to hear this? My boys will soon be old enough to become soldiers. Boys naturally dream of glory like I did. They need to know the truth. When the Soviets overran Tunz, they were filled with vengeance. Everyone ran in panic. Your grandfather August was too old to keep up, and the soldiers kicked him and hit him again and again as he tried to take your grandmother to a train station. Grandmother Marie was beside herself. She could not make them stop. They did it just for sport, for vengeance. Still, Grandpa made it with her onto the train where there was hardly room to stand. As the train pulled from the station and reached full speed, he died from his injuries and fell to the floor. The passengers had no tolerance for a dead person on that train. Even our own Prussian people had become like animals in the aftermath of the war. Some of them held Mother Buck 
as the others threw his body from the window of the moving train. This is how my dear father ended his days on earth. And now you can see what I mean when I tell you, war is hell. We were stunned to silence and deeply saddened. Felicitas was crying. Why didn't God protect grandfather? Martin asked somberly. If he protected us, why didn't he protect him? It took a moment for father to find his reply. That is a very hard question, son. I've wondered that myself. But for questions like this, there will be no answers until we are on the other side and can ask God face to face. For Martin, this answer was not satisfying. He remained deeply troubled. My other brother seemed to follow his cue. As for me, I embraced my father's answer wholeheartedly. It became my own. One might say it was because I was merely ten years old and my mind was less aware of the full tragedy involved. Perhaps so, but I will add that a great blessing followed my childlike faith, a blessing that has returned dividends for the rest of my life. Twelve members of our family had been marvelously preserved through the fall of East Prussia, but for a reason none can explain. The patriarch of the clan, my spiritual ancestor, August Bonke, was lost. To magnify one tragic loss above twelve miracles of preservation would seem to tarnish the joy and meaning of my relationship to God. By embracing my father's faithful answer, I could remain open and trusting towards a God who I believe had our very best interests at heart in spite of the things we could not understand. I have never improved on my father's answer. To this day, the unanswerable questions I leave in God's capable and loving hands. Every evening in Glückstadt we were jammed into that one room to sleep for the night. The bonky children shared blankets on the floor arranged around the one bed reserved for mother and father. We were crowded but happy to be together. At least we were out of the prison camp and breathing free air at last. Glückstadt was a small port town near the mouth of the Elbe River. The river emptied northward from the tip of Germany into the North Sea. Its estuary was situated just west of the great peninsula that connected Germany to the main land mass of Denmark. In fact, our city, whose seal depicted Lady Luck, had been founded in 1617 as the main trade center for the region. Fifty years before my family moved there, processed meat was shipped regularly from Glückstadt to America. This had kept the port viable for decades. But in the bigger picture, the town had run out of luck in direct competition with a huge trading center upriver. The little burg now had an inferiority complex, especially as it compared itself to Hamburg, the city of 1,500,000 that dominated the region. Ships from the port of Hamburg churned to and from the North Sea every day, passing the docks at Glückstadt without a pause. 
Only a few local fishing vessels were ever tied there. Perhaps I was especially vulnerable to the inferiority of Glückstadt. I began to feel it within myself, not just because of the small city in which I lived and the painful poverty of my refugee family and the fact that I was a very naughty boy, but for other reasons too. Our new life in Glückstadt held disappointments for me. First among them was my performance in school. As the bonky children entered the regular German school system, we discovered just how far behind we had fallen in Denmark camps. Much of the energy I would rather have invested in playing childhood games now had to be focused on extra hours of study to make up for lost time. Even so, I did not seem to overcome the setback as quickly and successfully as my older brothers did. They were energetic students. At the homework table they wrangled about the nuances of algebra, and their improving grades reflected their efforts. Soon they won high praises from mother and father. It was all endlessly Greek to me. My brother seemed to sow academically, while I plodded like an earthbound farmer sowing academic seeds that would not bear fruit for many seasons to come. Every class was hard work for me, but there was one class I detested above all others. English. Mother, father, why should I have to learn English? I'm German. They tried to tell me that it wasn't for me to question why. It was a required course in all of Germany now. I had to do it, and I would be held accountable to do it well, like my older brothers. Every day in school the teacher would dictate words in English. We obtained a standard workbook from the local bookstore and filled in the dictation on blank pages. When the book was filled, we were given a final test. Words were placed on the blackboard that we were to translate and write on our final page. On the day of the test, I wrote my answers in anger. In truth, I knew that I was guessing. I simply did not know the rules of the English language. So I wrote out of frustration and turned in my test before any other student in the room had finished. I then made a show of handing my booklet to the teacher before any of the others and being allowed to go out and play on the playground. What a shallow victory doomed to backfire and make things worse. The next day I was not surprised to see my workbook filled with red marks. The teacher's commentary on my work was not complimentary, even though I knew it was coming. I was crushed. As I placed that book in my bag and began to walk home, I knew that mother and father would see it and I would have to answer for my failure. The more I walked, the heavier that bag became. Finally, the weight of it slowed me to stop in front of the Glückstadt bookstore. That's when a wonderful thought came to me. I could buy a new workbook using my lunch money. I could exchange it for the old one. I would not have to answer to mom, dad, and my brothers for my mistakes. I took the workbook filled with accusing red marks and threw it into a trash barrel. In this way, I became foolish like Adam in the Garden of Eden, using a fig leaf to cover the awful truth. Every thought in my head about school hurt. 
It weighed on me like a heavy yoke. I could not succeed and I could not escape. Now my sinful whitewash made the burden of it seem even heavier. Adding to the load, I soon discovered the intense scorn that Lutheran schoolchildren had for Pentecostal children. On a typical Sunday, our father would be gone before sunup on his bicycle traveling to minister in Krempe. We could not afford another bicycle, so none of us went with him. We attended the local Pentecostal congregation. The Pentecostal believers in Glückstadt met in a small schoolroom behind the Lutheran church. When we were seen leaving our humble meetings in the shadow of the great Lutheran steeple, the news quickly spread that the bonkies were tongue-talkers. The teasing began, and it was more than teasing. Pentecostal were seen as primitive people, religious Neanderthals, a knuckle-dragging sect that only existed because of its ignorance. This gave the Lutheran children license to call us every name in the book. As a boy, I had no real argument to make it in our favor. In fact, our faith did not spring from a seminary textbook, a baptism, a catechism, or a confirmation ceremony. Rather, both salvation and the baptism of the Holy Spirit came from a direct and powerful encounter with God. By that experience, the Word of God became alive for us, and we were guided to the truth of Scripture through our spiritual relationship rather than by the study of theology or church history or religious traditions. Our kind of religion bypassed all that the Lutherans seemed to hold dear, and we were punished for it. We were considered unworthy of social standing. I remember how all of our women were playing clothes and no jewelry, and they never cut their hair, wearing it in an unstylish bun at the back of their heads. This was done as a part of the holiness heritage that had been the cradle of Pentecostals worldwide. Holiness standards demanded that believers look and talk and act differently from the rest of the world as a testimony to the true nature of their faith. So in the little town with an inferiority complex, we Pentecostals were below the bottom feeders. We were quite visible and gave the local residents something to look down upon. My older brother simply rose above it. They continued to excel in school, winning praises from their teachers. Accusations of Pentecostal ignorance simply would not stick on them. While they resented the teasing from their classmates, in their hearts they began to deal with even more difficult tensions. Pentecostal practice and the claims of education went to war in their souls. This meant that at church they might betray their academic beliefs under the influence of a guilt-inducing sermon. Then again, at school, they might betray their Pentecostal faith when it seemed to fall short of the rational arguments of science. Father's congregation in Krempe began to grow, but they were still a group of poor refugee families who could leave little in an offering plate. It seems the new Chancellor of West Germany, Konrad Adenauer, had passed a law allowing the soldiers of the Reichswehr to retire early and receive a pension for life. 
at the age of 44, my father had taken advantage of that law, believing that was the provision of God to fund his ministry in Krempe. Mother thought it all sounded too good to be true. She did not trust the government to follow through on its promise to pay the pension. How would they raise enough taxes to support such a thing after the war? On a day I shall never forget, the postman arrived with exceedingly good news. He handed her a government envelope containing the first pension check for 799 Deutschmarks. She ripped it open, shouting praises to God. She danced around the room and insisted on giving the postman two Deutschmarks as a tip. I had never seen such a display of generosity in my life. Almost immediately, she sat down and wrote a postcard addressed to her parents, Ernst and Minna, now living in Neu-Ulm. She was very eager to announce the good news. Tensions between the Bonkies and the Schefflers over father's choice to enter the full-time ministry had grown in recent months. Objections centered on the lack of a reliable income to support a family with six children. Now that objection was gone. We would be able to move from the one room that we shared. Mother reassured her parents that regardless of the amount of salary, the little church in Krempe could pay their pastor. Hermann would be supported for the rest of his life because of his long-standing service in the Reichswehr. Something that had been a heavy burden for him had been transformed into a blessing. Mother gave all the glory for this benefit to God. As a result, something was introduced into the bonky household with which I had little prior knowledge. Money. And soon to my ten-year-old mind, money became nearly synonymous with chocolate. This money-for-chocolate relationship began when I accompanied mother to do her shopping one day. I saw her take a portion of father's money from her purse to pay for meat, bread, vegetables, dish and laundry soap, and a small amount of chocolate candy. The money, it seemed to me, was like the Russian coupons we had used in the camp in Denmark, except that the choices in Denmark had never included chocolate. Mother brought all the groceries home and cooked them for supper. Then for dessert, with a glow on her face, she carefully rationed a portion of chocolate candy to each of her six children. This was like getting Christmas in July. Such luxuries had simply never been afforded since we had left our home in Stablak. As I bit into the chocolate, I experienced a revelation. What marvelous sensation was this! My taste buds had never been so turned on. The flavor went all over me with a sense of delicious well-being. Life seemed to consist of many things that were difficult and dull and tedious, like school and homework and chores. But now there was chocolate. I simply needed to have money to have more of it. The solution became quite clear to me. Mother had plenty of money in her purse. 
Money was now readily available to our family, and it was free. She had given away two Deutschmark to the postman, hadn't she? A portion of chocolate would cost much less. She would not miss such a small portion of money from her purse. Though I was merely an average student, I immediately became motivated to achieve at math. Well, at least the kind of math necessary to calculate the proper amount of Deutschmarks necessary to buy an individual portion of candy. Once I had this figured out, all I had to do was wait until Mother had abandoned her purse in the bedroom and retrieve the exact amount from her change wallet. A little here, a little there. Once, twice, three times over the next several weeks, I managed to find the right amount of change. Just a few pennies. It resulted in a trip downtown to obtain the pure joy of a very intense and personal chocolate experience. Oh, how I savored it and how I was filled with a sense of being wealthy. And finally the day came when I took a full Deutschmark from her purse. In my heart I knew I was wrong. At the store, as I finished my chocolate pleasure, I began to feel a sense of guilt gnawing at my inside. I walked from that place and I made a guilt-born vow. One day I will repay Mama one hundred Deutschmark to make up for the money I stole. That is what I will do. How do mothers do it? How do they know? Where do they learn the exquisite art of timing? My hand was well into her purse when I heard her voice behind me in the gloom of the bedroom. Reinhardt, what are you doing? I withdrew my hand as if a mousetrap had just snapped on my fingers. Nothing, mother. Nothing. This was technically not a lie, since I emerged from her purse with nothing in my hand. Somehow, however, I knew that what I had been doing was much more than nothing, and it was very, very wrong, and I was about to get the hiding of my life, which I positively deserved. I was hopelessly naughty. Mother turned the light on in the room. She stood there thoughtfully for a long moment, deciding how she would handle my transgression. Then slowly and deliberately she came to sit on the bed. Every moment of this process was pure torture. Opening her purse, she looked inside. The change wallet was open. Reinhardt, have you been stealing money from my wallet? No, Mama. I don't know what the others have been doing with it. I wanted to pass the blame onto my brothers. Patting the bed beside her, she indicated that she wanted me to sit down. I did. Look at me, Reinhardt. This was much worse than a hiding. I looked into the eyes of the woman I most loved and respected in the world and knew I had betrayed her. My pulse raised. It pounded in my temples, fueled by the foul vinegar of shame. Reinhardt, you know 
that you have disappointed me again. Yes, mother, I know. I have been missing money from my wallet before. Have you done this before? It took me a bit of mental reviewing to properly get this reply to come out of my mouth. I heaved a sigh. Yes, mother, I am so disappointed. But now I'm even more worried. It is one thing to misbehave, but it is another to be a sinner. Do you know what you have done is a sin before God? It's called stealing. Actually, I hadn't thought of it quite as stealing. I'd seen it as a way of getting, well, sort of sneaking chocolate. But now that she mentioned it, there was no denying that what I had done should be called stealing. I had taken her money, purely and simple. I nodded. Thou shalt not steal. It is one of the Ten Commandments. I nodded again. I had memorized the Ten Commandments. I knew them by heart. When we break God's law, it is a sin, Reinhard. You're a sinner, and I'm worried about you because sinners go to hell for all eternity. The pain of my transgression grew heavy indeed. Do you know this is why Christ died on the cross? I'd never thought of his death as applying strictly to me. In church and in family devotions, when we had heard about it, I had always thought of the sins of the whole world as causing the death of God's Son. Suddenly, my own sins were before me, slashing like a cat o' nine tails into the flesh of the Lamb of God. The taste of stolen chocolate turned completely foul in my memory. It seemed to cost so much more than money now. I couldn't calculate the price. The death of God's Son, I began to cry. Jesus died to save sinners, Reinhardt. He died so you would not have to go to hell for your sins. Would you like to receive Jesus as your Savior and be forgiven? Oh, yes, Mama, I would. In truth, I felt the awful reality of being lost. This was more than a life lesson. It was an eternal life lesson, one that marked me for the rest of my life and ministry. Only the Holy Spirit can accomplish this knowledge in the heart of a sinner. I did not want anything in my life ever again that cost God the death of his son. Nothing. I wanted to please him in every way, and I wanted to be forgiven. I repeated a prayer after her, acknowledging that I was a sinner and accepting Jesus as my Savior. When we finished... She hugged me. It was a birthday hug and more. It was my new birthday. I felt as if a thousand pounds had been lifted from my shoulders. It was the last time in my life that I ever stole anything. There is something else, Reinhardt. The Bible said that if you believe in your heart and confess the Lord Jesus with your mouth, you will be saved. Do you believe that you have been saved? Yes, mother, I do. If you have believed it, then you need to confess it. Sunday, when we are at church, I want you to stand up and confess to the other believers what happened here today. 
that will be confessing with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Will you do that? I was happy to say yes, and I did it. The people of the congregation welcomed me as a new member of the body of Christ that Sunday morning. When I confessed the Lord Jesus, something further happened in me. I knew that I belonged to the Pentecostal church. It was no longer just the church of my father and mother. It was now my church, too. They had welcomed me into the family of God. They were now my brothers and sisters. I felt affection for them. I began to love those who loved them and despised those who despised them. Needlessly to say, I had even less regard for the Lutherans in Glückstadt thereafter. Soon we moved into post-war public housing. It was something called a town council apartment. At last we had a space we did not have to share with other families. We had more than one bedroom, with a kitchen of our own. Father's pension had made that possible, and Mother was highly motivated to once again create a home that reflected her personality. A harmonium was obtained. Musical instruments and lessons began for each of us. I learned to play the guitar and sing. I was told that I had a wonderful singing voice as a lad. We became the musical bonky household again, as we had once been in Stablak, singing and playing hymns of praise to the Lord. I remember time after time during this period, Mother would suspect money was missing from her purse again. The first place she came to inquire was to me. Reinhard, did you steal money from my purse again? No, Mother. I did not steal anything. There is money missing. You have been a thief. Do not lie to me. Did you steal money again from my purse? My eyes were flashing as I replied, No, Mother, I did not steal money from your purse. She looked deeply at me and lowered her tone of voice. No, I can see by your eyes that you did not steal it. Even so, the burden of my original sin haunted my innocence. I could never walk away from mother feeling that she would not again suspect me of stealing. Sin had begotten the death of trust between us. How it pained me. But even a sinful boy finds moments of reprieve. One Sunday, another boy my age at church invited me to explore the woods behind town. He said that he had seen a mother deer with twin fawns out there and he might be able to find them again. We got permission from our parents and spent an hour following game trails without seeing anything more than the tracks in the mud. The bees were busy pollinating flowers and the tall grass was buzzing with insects in the warm sun. As we walked and talked, we forgot about the deer. We both decided that when we grow up, we wanted to be preachers. The idea occurred to us to practice our preaching skills on the surrounding trees. This became a regular Sunday activity for a number of weeks. We even took a Bible with us so that we could properly read our text before beginning a sermon. As time went by, however, 
I began to notice that my friend Hubert was a much better orator than me. His voice was stronger and his sermons more eloquent. Though I loved Jesus with all of my heart, I found it difficult to express my heart in words that matched his. This was a source of discomfort for me. After being born again, I thought that I should be able to do better than this. Again, I felt inadequate. Deep inside, I suspected that God knew what a troublemaker I was for my mother. In my immaturity, I felt that somehow my salvation must not be as genuine as my friend's. Though she had married the preaching major and attended a Pentecostal church, Mother too felt inadequate. She had never received the baptism of the Holy Spirit with speaking in tongues. She had wanted to know God in this way, but had not found it happening, no matter how she prayed. Discussions about it between her and Father were a normal part of our family experience. Now that Father was a Pentecostal preacher, she felt the need for the experience even more. I remember Mother reading scripture on the subject. In the book of Acts, it described that the people heard the sound of a rushing, mighty wind. Then tongues of fire descended on the heads of all those in the room, and they began to speak with other tongues. Somehow, this image of the tongues of fire jumped out at me. I read the scripture with her. I could almost see the flames in the upper room. God blessed his people with fire. I wanted my mother to have this experience. Mother, did the fire hurt the people? Did it burn on their heads? She heaved an exasperated sigh. No, Reinhard. It was like the burning bush Moses saw. The fire of God did not burn up the bush. It's not like a normal fire. What kind of fire is it? I think it was a signal fire. It was a sign to the Jewish people in Jerusalem to say that the day of Pentecost had been finally fulfilled. Will you have a flame of fire on your head when you are baptized with the Holy Spirit? No, Reinhard, I don't think so. The Bible says that we will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. With just human strength, it is impossible to do what God commands. His word says, it is not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. So when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power to preach. I hope you will have the fire on your head too, I said, just like in the Bible. In my heart, I began to ponder the idea that what I needed, like mother, was the same baptism of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps this was the power that would make me able to express the gospel that so dominated my heart. Not long after this conversation, I attended a life-changing Sunday service. On this particular day, Husband and wife missionary team had been invited to speak. I do not remember much about them because as they were speaking, the Spirit of God spoke to me in my heart. It was as if he said very clearly, Reinhard, one day you will preach 
my gospel in Africa. Until this moment, I had been a boy born in Germany with very little exposure to the larger world. My mental picture of the continents was not well schooled, but in my heart it was as if Africa had been suddenly written there. When we are born again, it is like this. Our names are written in heaven, and our eternal destiny is sealed there. But we can also receive an earthly destiny from our Heavenly Father. That is what I received as a mere boy at ten years of age. I have often wondered if the continent of Africa had been suggested to my mind by those missionaries who spoke that morning. Germany had a historic presence in Africa during the colonial era. I had certainly heard of it, but nothing had been made personal to me concerning the dark continent. Perhaps this couple had been working in Africa and had shown pictures. I frankly do not remember, and little does it matter. What matters is that I heard God speak in my heart so clearly. This was something I simply had to share with Father. I could hardly wait until he peddled in from Krempe that day. I waited for him on the street. As I sat there, I knew he would understand the voice of God I had heard inside. He also had heard from God. I recalled that Jesus had even visited him while in the prison camp and when he had decided to become a minister. Surely my father would become as excited as I was over my call to Africa, and he would confirm this great day in my life. When I saw him, I raced to meet him. Father, Father, God spoke to me in church today and said I must preach the gospel in Africa. I must have appeared to him like a bouncing puppy yapping out of excitement. He did not seem to understand he dismounted from his bicycle and asked me to repeat it. Then he looked at me with a puzzled and somber expression. Your brother Martin will be my heir, Reinhardt. He will be the preacher of the gospel in this family. It was like a shower of cold water. But father, God has called me to preach in Africa. He scolded. How do you know that God has called you? Disappointment darkened my heart. His tone of voice spoke louder than his words. It told me he was in deep doubt about my claim. I thought he would understand how important it was that I had heard directly from God. My mind searched for a way to explain to him the reality of it. What evidence did I have? Jesus had not visited me personally. Nor had I selected a scripture from a box of promises like mother when she received a word from God about our crossing from Danzig to Copenhagen. Nor did I hear an audible voice. All I had was the evidence of my heart, and I was not eloquent enough to put it into words to please him. On this day I began to understand that I had two fathers an earthly father and a heavenly father. Until that moment, I had assumed they spoke with one voice. After all, my father was a man of God, a minister of the gospel. Jesus had appeared to him in person, 
It was nearly crushing for me to realize that God might speak to me and my earthly father would not know it. But it happened that way. In the months that followed, I brought it up again and again. Each time my father responded in the same way, he doubted me. He quizzed me about how I could know the voice of God. Each time I had to deal with my deep disappointment and the gulf began to grow between us. Though today I understand this caution, back then it was as if my father and I knew a different God. In reality we each had a relationship with the same God, a relationship that was as unique as our individual fingerprints. This is, of course, how God delights to relate to each of us. The very hairs of our head are numbered. He reads the thoughts and intentions of our hearts perfectly and designs our paths accordingly. Jesus pointed this out to Peter, who had asked, What about John? Jesus replied, What is that to you? You follow me. The steps my father took in his journey with the Savior would not be my steps. God does not make spiritual clones. He raised up sons and daughters. Looking back, I see what an important lesson this was for me. Above all, we are called to hear and obey the still small voice of our Heavenly Father communicated to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. But if other voices are placed above that voice, we may come to doubt the very voice of God himself even after we have heard him clearly. Jesus taught, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. At ten years of age, God was giving me voice recognition lessons. More than I knew, God was testifying to see if I would follow his voice above all others. In this case, the voice of my own father seemed to contradict the voice in my heart. Jesus said, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Though I was too young to make that kind of choice consciously, I did make it in my heart. My father's doubt did not turn me away. The knowledge that God had called me to Africa at the tender age of ten has never left me. The Pentecostal church in Glückstadt announced that the special minister would visit the fellowship. He would hold a seekers meeting. This was a special meeting for those desiring to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Mother announced that she would go with father. I wanted to go too but they would rather that all the children stay at home. Mother already felt fresher enough. It was humbling and perhaps embarrassing for her to admit to the entire congregation that the wife of the Pentecostal preacher at Kempe had never known the experience for which the movement was named. I will pray that you receive the Holy Spirit with a flame of fire on your head, I said. At the meeting, the special speaker taught from the scriptures about the baptism with speaking in tongues. Then he invited those who were seeking to come forward to have hands laid upon them. Mother went forward. 
She received their prayers, but nothing happened. When she arrived home, I ran to her. Mother, did you receive the gift and the flame of fire on your head? No, Reinhardt, I'm sorry. I prayed, but I didn't seem to receive anything. I could see that she felt very disappointed, and I felt that I had made it even worse by asking about the flame of fire. No one could console her, and we all went to bed. Perhaps like the disciples in Gethsemane, I slept too soundly when I should have remained alert. So soundly did I sleep that I did not hear the sound of a rushing mighty wind as it hit the upstairs bedroom an hour later. Once mother had relaxed in bed, the false religious pressures she had felt at church melted away. Her self-consciousness and disappointment vanished. She reflected the words of Jesus. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? She had asked God for his Holy Spirit, but had been so pressured and distraught by her concerns that she had not been able to see the gift she had been freely given. The baptism of the Holy Spirit was not an experience acquired by religious diligence. It was not so much about seeking as it was about receiving. It was a gift made available by a loving Heavenly Father, and it was simply hers for the asking. Her faith to receive had been all mixed up with her own expectations and those of Father and those of the congregation. Suddenly she felt herself falling into the loving arms of her Lord. Flooded with waves of divine love, another language began to pour from her mouth like a fountain. She wept and praised God and spoke in tongues for hours, completely exhilarated by the experience. My brothers woke up and heard the commotion. I slept soundly through it all. In the early morning hours, Mother was due to go to Hamburg on church business. She left before any of us children had awakened. On the breakfast table we found a note. Dear children, last night Jesus baptized me with the Holy Spirit. Mother, when I read it, I was dumbfounded. How had I missed it? All day I could hardly contain myself waiting to see her. I wondered again about the flame of fire. When I saw Mother approaching on the street that evening, I ran to meet her. The closer I got, the more astonished I became. My mother was glowing. Her eyes sparkled. Her step was like the step of a young girl. She ran to me and swept me up in her arms, and it was not even my birthday. I could feel the love pouring from her like I had never felt before. It made me want to laugh and cry. Something had radically changed my mother. I no longer needed to see a flame of fire to believe she had received the real thing. Above all, I knew that I wanted to have what she had.
Chapter 10 Next to last. That was my place in the bonky lineup. Not last, which would have brought some measure of distinction, but next to last. I must have been easily overlooked in that dynamic mix of children. Martin led the way, so talented, sensitive, bright, and the designated heir to the preaching elder. Gerhard followed close behind, adding his athletic prowess to the picture. Jürgen and Peter were highly remarkable because they were a set of twins. I was followed by Felicitas, the only daughter in the Bonke family and the apple of her daddy's eye. Except for my reputation for getting into trouble, I think I must have fallen through the cracks. Oh, yes, where is Reinhard? We also have a son named Reinhard. Is he here somewhere? Reinhard, where are you? I would be presented to the family guests as an afterthought. As guests often do, they would ask, Well, Reinhard, you seem to be like a fine young boy. What are you going to be when you grow up? I'm going to be a missionary to Africa. I said without hesitation. In this, I distinguished myself. No other bonky child claimed to be called to Africa. Father would hear this and chuckle, winking at his guests. Children go through stages, you know. They usually grow out of it. This hurt me. I wanted my calling to be taken seriously. I took it very seriously. It was the only thing that gave purpose to my rather unremarkable life. Why would my father not help me move in that direction? My older brothers took the signal from father as permission to pile on with their own endless ridicule. They would sneak up behind their hands and shake their heads at me as if I was an alien. Reinhardt the missionary. This was a difficult period for me. In German there is a word for how I felt. Null. It is defined by the synonymous zero, not nil. In many ways I felt I was a zero, non-existent, like I didn't really matter. Adding evidence to that feeling was that I was from a poor family, a social outcast, struggling in school, and the least child of the Bonke clan. In the mirror of my own mind, Reinhardt was not just a dull boy, he was null. Sometimes my own reflection simply disappeared. I began to mention to my father how I needed the baptism of the Holy Spirit in order to have the power to preach the gospel in Africa. He did not deny that the spirit baptism with speaking in tongues was for everyone, but he did not lead me to the experience. He considered me too young and immature. Just because you are a boy with a mind of his own does not mean that you are ready to receive the spirit baptism. Father, I asked one day, since you do not believe that I have a real call from God, how do you know when you have a real one? How does it feel? I think he was surprised by my question. He thought for a while, then he said, Son, 
when you have a real call from God, then you will know it. You will know it deep in your heart. You will know, and it cannot be shaken. Every word that he said rang true in my heart, confirming my call from God. To me, it did not seem to be just another example of having a mind of my own. Father, I know that I know that I have a real call from God, I said. The look on his face told me he was not comfortable to hear such confidence coming from the mouth of a child. Perhaps this was true because of his childhood. He had longed for military glory, and he deeply regretted the decision it had led him to make as a seventeen-year-old. In my case, however, the Spirit of God was leading me in the direction of divine service. My father had not known such a thing as a boy. I am happy to add that many years later, when he visited me in Africa, this conversation between us about my calling became one of his favorite stories to tell from the pulpit. His eyes would shine with tears as he confessed with great pride how wrong he had been in his judgment of me as a ten-year-old boy. In late 1950 and early 1951, I recall how mother and father shared stories of the weekly Pentecostal prayer meetings in Glückstadt. It seems the little group of believers were having visions, prophecies, words of knowledge, and other gifts of the Spirit manifested as they waited before the Lord. My heart thrilled as I overheard these stories, and I wanted to be among the people of God at every opportunity. But prayer meetings were considered inappropriate for children. During my eleventh year, I began to ask Mother if I could go to the Friday night prayer meeting with her. Again and again, she denied my request. In my heart, I was sure I was being denied because I was unworthy. All the years of misbehavior and self-will had disqualified me to be in the presence of God's people. To make up for it, I would do my chores all week and even do extra chores on Friday, trying to make her change her mind. Still, she said, no. Week after week it went on like this. I grew more disappointed, blaming myself for all of it. Finally, one day, she said no, and I could not hide my pain. Tears spilled from my eyes. Mother was taken aback. She sat down, astonished. She gazed at me as if she had not seen me before. What is this I am seeing, she asked. A boy of eleven who wants to attend prayer meeting so badly that he sheds tears? Your heart must be ready to be a part of these things. I sense the Lord telling me I must change my answer to yes. I leaped up and hugged her. Thank you, mother. I do want to go more than anything. From that day, I began to attend every church service, not just on Sunday, but every service during the week. If the church was in session, I was there. 
in each service where they were singing, Mother saw to it that I had my guitar and could lend my voice to the songs of praise to God. One weekday evening, at the end of the prayer meeting, I was standing beside mother and father, ready to be dismissed. The pastor made an announcement that Grandma Bouchos, an elderly lady in the congregation, had experienced a vision. On his invitation, she stood and related her vision to the members of the little group. I saw a crowd of black people, she said, a very large crowd. They were gathered in a semicircle around a little boy with a big loaf of bread. He was breaking the bread and giving it to the people, and as he did, the loaf of bread continued to increase. Then she turned to me and pointed. The little boy that I saw was this one. I cannot adequately tell you what happens inside a boy when something like this occurs. It was like pouring hot oil over my head, anointing me to see the vision from God confirmed and fulfilled in my life. Yet, in that hour, neither I nor father nor mother could even faintly imagine just how powerfully this vision would eventually play out. We could only be thrilled with anticipation and wonder at this unexpected manifestation of a spiritual gift. My father looked at me incredulously. I think for the first time he began to get a glimmer that perhaps I had actually heard from God. But I could tell that he still doubted, and as time went by, it became quite clear that his hopes were still pinned on Martin to be the gospel preacher in our family. I'm sure that my continuing misbehavior helped move his thoughts in that direction. One fine spring day, I accompanied mother to the grocery store. As we entered, something in the window caught my eye. It was a colorful poster announcing the coming of a circus. I told mother that I would remain outside as she shopped. When she had finished, I would carry home the groceries she had bought. This gave me time to study the fascinating poster in the window more closely. It featured a number of African lions jumping through hoops. There were trained stallions, bears, monkeys, and a wonderful circus elephant. A troop of acrobats, clowns, and a flying trapeze were also featured. At the bottom of the poster, the dates for the circus were posted. I studied them. A circus train was shown in miniature with an illustration of the trained elephant helping to erect the main pole of the tent. How I wanted to see that. It just fascinated me. The big top would be set up in a field at the edge of town. My blood raced at the thought of all these wonders. Reinhard, what are you doing? There was a familiar tone of disapproval in mother's voice. I had lost track of time. She had finished shopping and was ready to head home with her bags of groceries. Look, mother, I said excitedly, a circus is coming. Can we go? 
What? You are a boy who has been born again, and you ask me that? Can't you see that this is a sinful activity? Absolutely not. Oh, Reinhard, when will I stop being disappointed with you? Mother, the lions jump through hoops, and the stallions walk on their hind legs, and the monkeys and elephants do tricks. Is that sinful? She walked over to look at the poster. Her face turned crimson. She turned to me with a look of near rage. Have you been out here all this time looking at those nearly naked women on the trapeze? Honestly, I had hardly given them any notice. No, mother, no. It were the other things, the animals I was looking at. Mother stuffed the grocery bags into my arms. The circus is nothing but an excuse for women to flaunt their bodies and arouse sinful passions in men. Take these groceries and get your eyes off that poster. I ought to give you a good hiding right here, on the spot. I wasn't looking at the women, mother. I was looking at the animals, I swear. She gasped and stopped dead in her tracks. You swear? You swear? Swearing is a sin. Do you see how one sin leads to another? My son is swearing. I didn't mean to swear, mother. I'm sorry. But I wasn't looking at the women. I was looking at the animals. Are the circus animals sinful too? Are they? She sighed deeply. There's nothing wrong with the animals, Reinhardt. They are God's innocent creatures, except they have been made part of that godless circus. That circus has spiritists, gypsy fortune tellers, palm readers, and all sorts of evil influences. No one from the Pentecostal church had better be caught dead there. I can tell you that for sure. We walked on in silence for a while as she became calm and serious. Reinhardt, how would you feel being at that circus when Jesus came? Do you think you would rise to meet the Lord in the air while you are watching scantily clad women swinging through the air like that? Oh, dear Jesus, how could you go to an activity like that and think that you could be ready to meet our Lord? You can't live with one foot in the church and the other in the world, son. Not if you want to be part of God's spotless bride. No, you can't. The Bible says, be hot or cold. If you are lukewarm, God will spit you out of his mouth. I had such high hopes when you gave your heart to the Lord, but now I worry that your heart is being led astray. I walked the rest of the way without another word. All that she said raised new fears in my heart. I did not want to be led astray, but she had said that the animals were not sinful. That was the one bright spot in her exhortation. They were innocent creatures of God, she had said. I knew that was true in my heart, and I focused my mind on it. It made me feel better to think that I had not been attracted to the wrong thing, at least. I knew nothing about gypsy acrobats and scantily clad fortune tellers. They did sound evil, and I would certainly avoid them. But the wonder of wild animals from Africa being trained to jump through hoops 
and perform at the circus seemed totally innocent and acceptable. My imagination ran wild as we continued to walk. The day the circus train arrived in town, I managed to get away to watch them. Tigers, lions, and bears paced in their railroad cages at the station. This was the closest I had ever been to an exotic wild animal. The sight of them at such close quarters filled me with wonder. I walked along the tracks, looking at each of them. The animal trainers used the stallions and the elephant to haul the big tent and its trappings out of the boxcar and into the field at the edge of town. I followed them, in awe at the process. The power of the elephant was amazing as he pushed the huge tent pole into place in the center of the field. Afterward, the crew stopped to eat a sandwich. The elephant trainer put a small cotton rope around the elephant's leg and tethered him to a tent stake. This amazed me. I knew the powerful elephant could pull that stake out of the ground without even trying. How could the trainer trust that he would not bold for his freedom as soon as his back was turned? I came close enough to engage him in conversation. He seemed to be a very nice man, and he explained how this particular elephant had come from the Hagenbeck Zoo in Hamburg. This was the most famous elephant training zoo in the world, he said, and it had been rebuilt by the Hagenbeck family after being bombed during the war. The new zoo, he said, was the best in the world. He recommended that I see it one day. Why doesn't the elephant pull the stake out of the ground? I asked him. The trainer smiled. It starts when the elephant is a baby. We place a chain around its leg, and we stake it to a strong stake in the ground. The baby elephant pulls against it again and again with all his might, but he can't pull it out. Eventually, he is smart enough to stop trying. When he quits trying to break free, he is fully trained. You can put a thread around his leg. And when he feels the slightest tug, he will think it is the chain and he will not go against it. His memory tells him that's impossible. A full-grown elephant would be a very dangerous animal if he wasn't trained like this. It's a good thing he can't tell the difference between a chain and a thread. Exactly, said the trainer with a chuckle. He's smart but not that smart. All of this information just fascinated me. I stayed on and watched the entire process of setting up the tent until it was done. As I returned home, filled with vivid images from my experience, it suddenly came over me that something was terribly wrong. All my brothers and sisters were seated solemnly around the room. They were quiet and not looking at me. Mom emerged from the bedroom. I could see she had been crying, but on her face was not sorrow or pain. 
It was the rage I had seen earlier at the circus poster. Get in this bedroom now, she ordered. I knew better than to say anything at this point. I went obediently and silently into the bedroom. She shut the door firmly behind us. After I warned you, how could you go near that place of sin? Mama, I just went to see the animals. You were seen by Sister Kruger. She said you were there all day watching the tent being put up. I told you the circus was a worldly pleasure. The Bible says we are to avoid the very appearance of evil. Did you do that? I couldn't deny it. No, mother. I'm going to give you the hiding of your life. And she did. I will never forget it. I was literally black and blue in places. It was the most terrible punishment I ever received. Perhaps the real effect of the hiding was much more than skin deep. I felt something was truly wrong with me. I had failed to understand my own attraction to the circus. I had flirted with sinful activity when I should have fled from the very appearance of it. Mother had warned me. I had thought that after the chocolate incident I had really given my heart to the Lord. But now... I felt far from being a new creature in Christ. It was like I had to start all over again, like I had to repent and be saved again. Looking back, I can see that I was like the young circus elephant. A heavy chain had been placed around my ankle and tied to a stake too strong for me. It would one day be nothing more than a tiny thread, but my heart would tell me it was the heavy chain. The slightest tug on that thread would make me feel the weight of the immovable stake in the ground, even though it was no longer there. The good news was that I was not an elephant. I was a lamb in the flock of the Good Shepherd. He had spoken to me, and I knew his voice. One day I would be able to grow in my relationship with him enough to realize that he was not the author of this bondage. But at the time I did not have enough life experience to see over this setback. When mother left the bedroom, I felt as if God himself had left the bedroom. My mind knew better, but feelings can be very powerful persuaders. Her disapproval and God's disapproval seemed one and the same. It lay heavy on me. As I lay in my bed, I recalled the day Mother had come home from Hamburg after receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I recalled how she had hugged me and how the fountain of love had poured from her very soul into mine. Until that bright day, I had felt that she would rather give me a good hiding than give me a hug. Suddenly, she had loved me without condition, and I felt that God must have loved me in the same way. I wept at the memory of it. Now I had betrayed that outpouring of love. I no longer deserved it from mother or from God. How would I ever rise above my own sinfulness? 
The first day of the rest of my life happened in 1951, the day I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I was still 11 years old. A special guest speaker came to Glückstadt from Finland. His name was Pastor Artur Kukula, and he was well known for leading people in receiving this gift. Rather than have a seekers meeting in the main hall, the local believers decided to have him come to a smaller gathering held in a home in the rural countryside. I had been to that house many times for Sunday dinner after church. It was one of my favorite places on earth. This particular farmhouse was a bit of heaven because the family had rigged a rope swing with a spare tire on the end, anchored on a giant oak limb. The arc of the swing would send the rider out over an embankment. You could feel your stomach come up in your throat as the ground dropped away beneath you. I had spent many hours on that swing. I couldn't get enough of it. In the back of my mind, I thought that maybe I could go to the cottage prayer meeting and stay outside riding the best thrill ride in Glückstadt. Reinhard, you said you wanted the baptism like your mother. Why don't you go with me to this meeting? I was shocked. My father was asking me to go. Immediately I felt condemned by my worldly thoughts. Instead of thinking of this meeting as my opportunity to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I had been fantasizing about riding the swing. It was so typical of my naughtiness and my unholiness. No, Hermann, Mother quickly spoke up. I hardly think Reinhard is ready for such an experience. Mother is right, I agreed. I will stay home. For some reason, Dad did not accept this answer. Maybe God was beginning to speak to him about me, I wonder. This does not sound like my Reinhardt, he said. He's always talking about needing the baptism for his calling to Africa. Reverend Asra Kukula is here, Mita. We should not ignore this opportunity. Besides, the Lord Jesus himself is the baptizer with the Holy Ghost. If he desires to baptize Reinhardt, who are we to stand in his way? And so I went with him. As we walked towards the farmhouse, I struggled with my feelings of unworthiness. How would God stoop to fill such a wayward boy like me with the Holy Spirit? I was surely not to be trusted with this priceless gift. When we arrived at the house, we could hear singing. Outside, the great swing in the oak tree swayed silently in the breeze, accusing me of my tendency towards worldly thoughts. I turned away from it, fervently asking God to forgive me, and followed my father into the house. As soon as I entered the room with those saints, I felt something begin to tingle inside of me. Incredibly, it was a growing expectation that I would receive the gift of the baptism this evening. My heart trembled to think that God would do such a thing. Reinhardt, the null boy, the worldly boy, the naughty boy, would be visited by the power of the Holy Spirit. I began to be excited 
and I felt broken inside. It was a good feeling because I felt broken before God and I began to sense his love for me as a broken boy. Surely this gift would lift me above the string of failures I had racked up. As Arthur Kukula spoke, my faith leaped up and shouted, Yes, within me. The words of scripture seemed to come alive in my chest. Suddenly the entire experience was no longer about me. It was about God and his great love for his children. When Arthur invited those seeking the Holy Spirit to kneel and pray, I did so immediately. No sooner had I reached my knees than I was overwhelmed by an incredible sensation. No one needed to lay hands on me to pray. I received the gift of speaking in tongues spontaneously and burst out in a heavenly language. How can I describe it? Let me say first of all that there are many who have experienced the spirit baptism in a quieter and less dramatic fashion. What follows is not a how to receive. It is a description of how it happened to me at the age of eleven. It seemed to come from beyond me and from within me at the same time. My mind began to receive a stream of pure light and love from the very throne of God. It flowed over me and went straight through me at once. This was far more than a mere bolt of electricity. It was as if every cell in my body was being saved, healed, and invigorated by a surge of divine power. The word love is inadequate to describe it because that word has been so abused and misused. Yet it is what the power and spirit of God is, his pure, selfless, agape love poured into us. It has nothing to do with transient human love. It reminds me of the prayer Jesus prayed at the Last Supper, that the love wherewith you have loved me may be in them and I in them. All of my disappointments, feelings of unworthiness and condemnation were swept away and forgotten. The heavenly language cascading from my lips was the outer expression of something flowing within me that was too wonderful for normal language. Between my spirit and God's spirit, great mysteries were being exchanged. Paul spoke of the peace of God that passes understanding. Some blessings from God are beyond intellect. Spirit baptism is one of them. People who limit God to mere human rationality will never know this power and this ecstasy. As the Spirit flowed, I was being transformed from my human limitations to a place where all things were possible. As children, we all had heard the stories of how the Christian martyrs of the first century died. Some were burned alive to light Nero's garden parties. In the natural, they should have been screaming in pain, but ancient history books tell us that they died singing praises to God. Before experiencing my spirit baptism, 
Such stories made me feel small and inadequate. Reinhard, the worldly boy, could never live up to them. I could never be that brave. But now I understood instinctively that the first-century martyrs were not brave. Rather, they were believers like me who had been swept from the natural to the supernatural on a flowing fountain of the Spirit. During my baptism, I could have easily sung in the flames with the martyrs, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, said the Lord of hosts. As my experience continued, it was as if I had received a mind transfusion. My thoughts were being replaced by an infusion of pure and heavenly thoughts that were simply not my own. Under their influence, I held nothing against anyone who had ever wronged me. No persecution or insult or act of spite or misunderstanding could find a place of bitterness in my overflowing heart. Forgiveness was as easy as breathing, and it flowed from me on a tide of tears. Believe me, this was a mind-expanding experience for a boy of eleven. Every form of fear, self-consciousness, and natural self-centeredness was blown away like chaff as God poured His love through me. Once I experienced it, nothing else compared. I immediately recognized the source of this blessing. It could only come from God. This was because the Spirit of Christ, which already lived inside of me, was programmed to recognize Him. Abba, Father, God is love. The Scripture informs us that if the Spirit of Christ does not live in us, then we have not been born again. I had already entered a relationship with Him by accepting Jesus as my Savior. Under the influence of the baptism, all doubt was erased about the validity of my salvation. I had been truly born again when I prayed with mother after stealing money from her purse to buy chocolate. Spirit baptism was not the same as the new birth that had happened then. The Bible tells us that after new birth, the Spirit of Christ comes to live within us. Yet, we may not feel its effect and we cannot see its essence. Still, we are told that one day the same Spirit will raise our dead bodies from the grave. Yet, day in and day out, after my new birth, I have not been able to see evidence that this powerful Spirit was living in me. Nor did I readily see it in other believers. I needed a helper. Under the experience of the Holy Spirit baptism, the helper became fully alive to me. The reality of the Spirit's presence sprang up in me like a fountain that became almost unbearably wonderful. Suddenly, love made it easy to believe. Neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor even my mother leaving the room in strong disapproval could separate me from the source of this love. I was lost in loving God and being loved by Him. This was life eternal. By the Spirit I instantly knew 
that we are all null. We are all zero until we leave our reality and enter his. At the age of 11, the spirit baptism began to lead me on an adventure of faith that has not ended. I literally took off like a rocket ship and no one could stop me. I continue to be empowered by it to this very day. When father and I arrived home after the meeting with Reverend Kukula, mother was sitting in her big rocking chair knitting a woolen shawl. That announced that the Lord had filled me with his spirit and I had spoken in tongues. Mother froze in mid-stitch. The chair stopped rocking. No, she said in disbelief, a stunned look on her face. It was plain to see that in her mind I was hardly a candidate for such a gift from God. Her response did not offend me. I was still aglow with the experience, overflowing with love, just like she had been the day after receiving her baptism. In my heart I had begun to understand that the baptism was a free gift, not a salary earned or a reward for diligence and a good behavior if we could make ourselves worthy to receive the Holy Spirit, then we would no longer need the Holy Spirit. The first step towards being filled was to be empty of self. I had walked in that farmhouse door a zero, feeling totally unworthy, with absolutely no confidence in my own righteousness. That turned out to be the perfect attitude in which to receive. I wanted to shout praises to God who loved me so much, to think that he would fill me with his spirit simply by my asking. I ran to my mother and hugged her. Every day that followed, I begged my parents to allow me to follow the Lord in water baptism. I was so eager to identify completely with Jesus after being filled with the Spirit. Mother's response was, if the Lord was willing to baptize him in the Holy Spirit at such a young age, how can we deny him water baptism? And so I was baptized in a special service held in Hamburg, Bachstraße 7a, in 1951. Soon after, I became a nuisance to my young friends at church. We must preach the gospel, I urged them. Let's go preach. We must preach to the lost. They did not quite share my level of enthusiasm. They still saw me as the boy who had barely outlived his dismal attempt to preach the trees. One day, I took my guitar and headed to a street corner in downtown Glückstadt. I had quite a nice singing voice as a boy, thanks to the training from mother. I began to sing until a small crowd gathered. Then I put down my guitar, reached for my Bible, and preached the simple invitation to receive Jesus. To my amazement, one man knelt and prayed the sinner's prayer with me right there on the street. I raced home as fast as my legs would carry me, bursting into the living room completely out of breath. Mother and father must have thought that the city was burning down. 
Father, Father, I cried, it works. It works. It really works. A man came to hear me preach today and he accepted Jesus. The Holy Spirit really gives us the power to preach. The look on their faces was something that I began to see quite often. It was a look as if they were wondering if they had been given the wrong baby at the hospital. I know many people, yes, even Pentecostal believers who have encountered the power of the Holy Spirit, yet have returned to lead lives of quiet desperation. Reinhard Bonnke is not one of them. My life is filled with challenges, yet it is also full of passion, meaning, joy, enthusiasm, peace and blessing. I did not produce these wonderful things. These are fruits that flow from an intimate relationship with my Heavenly Father. They can be yours as easily as they are mine. You do not have to become worthy. If you are spiritually lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, it is not a curse but an opportunity. According to Scripture, Jesus stands at the door of your heart knocking. I am the bread of life, Jesus said to a crowd of religious doubters. Doubt is transformed into faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. I like that so much. I'm still the boy in Grandma Boucher's vision. I break now a piece of the loaf of living bread he has given me, and I offer it to you. Would you accept a piece of his pure goodness? Turn to him now. Begin your journey of faith and fruitfulness. It is that simple. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will eat with him and he with me. Part 3. School of the Spirit Heavenly Father, unbelievers send ships from Hamburg every day. I see them come and I see them go. You have called me to Africa. How long must I wait for a ship to take me there?